We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always my co-host Nick Villato, and really, really excited to break down the All-22 coaches film for both the end zone and the field angles with you guys tonight because this was a special Giants game. It was a week one win. It was something we just simply haven't seen in a long time. Hope for a season that ultimately a lot of fans going in, understandably, didn't have a lot of hope for. And I think now after this game, especially as me and Nick worked through the film and then talked off pod about what we saw in the film, it's clear that both me and Nick are a lot more hopeful about this specific giant season, albeit a rebuilding one. Shane has made it clear. The Giants have made it clear via their actions. They couldn't keep Bradbury. They couldn't keep other veterans on the roster that maybe might have helped them this year. And yet, despite going about it the right way, as far as the rebuild goes, really fully peeling that Band-Aid and ripping it off, they still might be competitive this year. That was obvious with a win over the Titans on the road. And it became more obvious when we watched the tape. And we'll break down part of why tonight, which is the offensive side of the ball. Obviously, as you know, if you're not new to this if, to this podcast, we break down the offensive All-22 Coaches film on this podcast. And then coming up next on a separate podcast, we'll break down the defensive coaching All-22 film. We might change the format as we go throughout the year, but the crux of it will be the breakdown of the film. And to me, Nick, I came away even more enthused after watching the tape, specifically of one person that I felt when I watched the broadcast last night and we went over it on the podcast, Nick, he had a pretty good game. And then after watching this, I was like, damn, he had as about as good of a game as you can have for a debut as an offensive play caller. And that's Mike Kafka. And so we're going to talk a lot about Kafka tonight. We're going to talk about Daniel Jones, the offensive line, Barkley. A lot of people asking us questions to break down Evan Neal. So I'll definitely get into that with Nick as well along with other offensive linemen who stood out. There were some interesting plays, some interesting releases from wide receivers I want to bring up, some unheralded guys. And so there's a lot to talk about tonight. Nick, where do you want to start off this bad boy? And, and, and just let's start out. Let me, let me actually walk that back a little, Nick. What was your takeaway or what did you feel differently about after watching the film that you might have not felt the same about after, our, you know, after watching the broadcast yesterday? Not trying to beat dead horse here, Dan, but I think New York Giant fans deserve it. And the thing that I was most excited about, even after the game, we talked about it on yesterday's podcast. After the All-22, I came away even more enthused, and that's Mike Kafka, man. Mike Kafka hit big plays in this game and then went for freaking throat shots with that Kadarius Tony double pass with him being that fast three out there. 
that was off of a huge Saquon Barkley run, a 33-yard run when the defense was gassed, and he goes for the kill. I love that part of him. I love the fact that he is moving the pocket. I love the fact that he is throwing on obvious rundowns, running on some passing downs at certain times. I love the way that he adjusted his play calling to combat the defensive front that Shane Bowen was employing. His overall ability to coach this game was pretty damn excellent, especially when you consider the fact, Dan, that this guy, this is his first time doing this at a professional level. This is his first time being a professional play caller. He made adjustments at halftime, one that sprung that 68-yard run by Saquon Barkley. That was an adjustment. Before that run, Dan, Mike Kafka didn't do the double puller with the center. Now, some of that has to do with the defensive front, how the defensive front is employed. But to open the half, the Titans were using this 2-4-5 defense, right, where they would have basically like a three technique or a two technique to the strong side and then a one technique to the backside of the formation. The Giants would block that two technique, three technique down and then have the backside offensive guard just do enough to stop that one technique from penetrating. You see Glowinski do it on that really long run by Saquon Barkley. And what the Giants did was they would pull the play side guard, kind of like a G lead, and then the center. So as long as that backside guard, which is typically Glowinski, think about Glowinski, very, very quick feet. If he can just cut off the angle enough of a one technique, which is pretty damn difficult on that play, then you have two pullers pulling into space. That's not something that is super common that, that you can employ as an offense to, to have your backside guard execute a block like that. And I also love the fact that on that play, speaking of the 68-yard run by Saquon Barkley, you have Daniel Jones roll out like he's doing a play-action boot. And what helped that play succeed was the fact that the one technique followed Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley didn't have to worry about him as a backside pursuit defender. Now you have John Feliciano eliminating Zach Cunningham. You have, I believe it was Joshua Azudu kicking out Christian Fulton, just kind of sending him upfield. Now it's Saquon Barkley against the safety. And guess what, Dan? That safety did not have the angle whatsoever because Saquon Barkley is back to being Saquon Barkley, baby. That was because of an offensive adjustment made by Mike Kafka. These little adjustments that you see from this guy, man, it gets me really excited. Yeah, I think when we watch the broadcast, Nick, it's easy to see some of the players who stand out as just truly special in a game and any kind of win. But as far as the play calling goes, while it is seeable and it is noticeable on the broadcast, when you actually go back and watch the film of these games, you could really stand out even more. For me, Kafka got put in this situation. A first-year call, a first-year play caller without his left guard that he expected to start camp with, without really the number one wide receiver they expected, at least in Kadarius Tony coming into the season. And it's not like a Joe Lombardi situation, right? He didn't get Justin Herbert. No offense to Daniel Jones, but he's obviously not the talent level of a Justin Herbert. That's beyond clear to anyone with two sets of eyes, with a set of two eyes. And so He's working with the deck somewhat stacked against him, against a tough Titans team on the road that was actually one of the better defenses statistically last season. And everything he showed was not just like an A or an A minus. It was really honestly and truly unobjectively an A plus game plan for a multitude of reasons. For starters, before I get into the play, some of the play calls I really like, Nick, that I want to go over with you. He adjusted in game to something that wasn't working. Clearly what the Giants tried to do on offense in the first half wasn't working, and he, instead of trying to barrel down on that and double down on it and keep going back to it, he altered that game plan, went very run heavy, and started to move the pocket with Jones and to start to, start to find different ways to get the Giants to, to, have a, to be in a position where they can actually create offense against a Titans team that was playing them incredibly aggressive and taking away a lot of what they wanted to do early on in the passing game. In addition to that, 
Kafka ran, used pre-snap motion on 38 of 58 plays, according to True Media. 38 of 58, that's an incredibly high number, unlike anything we saw in the Jason Garrett era. And it's no surprise to me that eight of the ten, eight of the Giants' 10 highest EPA plays, and EPA is expected points added on a per-play basis. It's another advanced metric. Eight of those 10 plays came when the Giants used pre-snap motion on that play. Again, 38 of 58, eight of their 10 best plays with pre-snap motion. So that was something else I liked. But the biggest thing for me was the play calling feel. There were just so many examples of him having such a good feel, whether it be the trick play that didn't work, but was a perfect time to call the throat shot, whether it be the play he designed in the red zone for the game winning or the game tying or the game ultimately winning touchdown after the two point conversion to Chris Myrick, where the dude is just wide open and Davis Sills, Sills, David Sills, if he doesn't trip coming out of his break, uh, his break there, he's also going to be wide open. We have not seen many easy walk in time, giant touchdowns in a very, very long time. I can't remember almost any from the judge error, maybe a few, if any, from the Shermer error, he designs that. In addition to that, there were just some really good plays that ultimately some of which maybe didn't work as well, but at the same time, we're really well designed up. He threw a, th- a screen. I believe it was. I'm trying to find this play now in the notes to find the exact timestamp on it, Nick. I think it was second and 11 with 13.05 in the fourth quarter. This was ultimately a screen that didn't go for that many yards because Evan Neal was kind of in no man's land and it wasn't really executed that well from a blocking standpoint. But you could just tell the defense was caught completely off guard by the screen. It was like he'd been waiting to call this all game, Nick. And instead of kind of jamming it or forcing it at a bad time, he put it in at the perfect time where the defense was completely off guard. And I feel like there were a good amount of examples of that throughout the game. So that stood out to me most is that I think the Giants may be really, we, we all were so excited, me and you, about what Wink Martindale will add. And we're going to get to him on the defense podcast because he really didn't disappoint, to be completely honest. But I think we were a bit not skeptical, just uncertain of, you know, what was Mike Kath going to be as a play caller? He's never done it before. We didn't have the film like we did with Wink with the Ravens to work with. And I just, I can't imagine him having a better first game than he had today. Absolutely. And I don't really fault us at all either, Dan. We weren't even sure that this guy was going to be calling plays up until about preseason. And even then it was somewhat of a question, but you're like, why would you have this guy call plays during the preseason and then not afford him that opportunity in week one against Tennessee? And he did not disappoint. And also you mentioned this a little bit, but I think it's important. What were the Giants really struggling with early on in this game? And they could not slow down that pass rush of Jeffrey Simmons. They had to get to the running attack. And then they were trying to work RPO a little bit, but they had to just get to the rushing attack. And they were doing it in a variety of unique type of ways, right? And they were building, you know, play action, bootleg rollouts, off of that kind of stuff as well. But they were using the zone read. They were using split back zone read, you know, play action, bootleg. Like I said, they tried an end around. They were using a lot of jet motion, which, you know, eventually ended up setting up a jet motion play to Kadarius Tony. They were showing that all game where they would just run Richie James right behind Daniel Jones. He would talk like he's getting the ball, but he absolutely isn't. And then they would just run the football after that. Well, they ended up actually handing that football off in the same look to Kadarius Tony to get that kid the football in space, which is something that we really want to see, but obviously there are reasons why he's not out there, but that's a way to get him the football in a very easy, low risk type of manner. I just like the fact that he was able to slow down that pass rush by sticking to his guns and running the football in an aggressive manner. Mind you, it's not like they were just going out there running duo inside zone. They were pulling, bro. They ran more gap power concepts than they did 
inside zone concepts. And they ran a ton of zone read too, but they still had more gap power plays, whether they were pulling the backside guard and just having him lead or kick out the end man on a line of scrimmage, or they were running counter a little bit. They threw a couple chains up change ups with counter, which is also something that Todd Downing did an excellent job against Wink Martindale. Wink Martindale's bare fronts. He was starting to run counter and misdirection. And that's when Derrick Henry sprung that 18 yard game. We'll get to that on the defensive podcast, but man, I really appreciated how Mike Kafka was able to, to just run the football and do it in a variety of different ways to success and just kind of own the point of attack. Yeah. You might have a young offensive line with two rookies starting on it, but guess what? We're going to use their athletic ability. We're going to get them out in space and we're going to be able to allow our best player, Saquon Barkley to make some noise. Yeah, you nailed it, Nick. And it really is funny to me because we always talk during maybe the Garrett Colombo era, like we're going to see more power gap. This is great. It's what Barkley can really thrive under. And then we felt like we we're going to go back to a little bit more zone with this offensive system. But it seems like they are trying different things and finding ways to scheme up run game that will be specific to the opponent they face. Like in this example, you just broke down facing the Titans and what they were doing on defense. And we've seen so many times to your other point, Nick, we've seen so many times over and over again, watching this giants team where when you have an issue like the giants had in pass protection at the left guard position, which it showed up in crazy, in a crazy degree in the first half of the giants, it's just game over, right? We've seen so many times. That's it. Giants offense doesn't move the ball. There's nothing they can do. There's no way they can figure out offense. And in this game, they adjusted. They figured out offense in the second half of this game to a large degree. And that's something alone in itself that deserves a lot of credit because there's just so few examples, so many more examples, I should say, of coaches not really being able to do that. Not just in the Giants history, but around the NFL, you see this all the time. So that alone deserves a lot of credit. I couldn't be more enthusiastic about what I saw from Mike Kafka in his first game. It has me really excited about what he can do with this offense overall moving forward. And, and there's a lot of other reasons to be excited about this offense, specifically the run game. And we'll get to that as well throughout this podcast. But let's dive into this maybe by possession, I would say, Nick. And let's just try to think of some interesting things that stood out to us possession-wise. I want to talk about the first possession. The Giants went three and out. I thought this was kind of early on and a little bit, expect, not expected jitters, but in, in a sense, just expected kind of continuity issues. The, uh, the first down run, the Giants kind of had uh, 85 coming around as the sniffer, and he whiffed. And then they had 82 trying to seal down. It just kind of made me feel like, all right, maybe this run game isn't going to get going today. And it's just interesting to see how it evolved throughout the day from this first possession. But I think that was kind of defining play for me on that possession when they weren't able to kind of execute that the way they wanted. Anything specific from that first possession that stood out to you? Kind of wish Daniel Jones kept the football on the on the first play. It, yes. it would look like a zone read type play. And I get it because Daniel Bellinger was blocking down on the end man on the line of scrimmage who was reading. So he wouldn't be a pursuit defender. So just hand the football off to Saquon Barkley. But if Daniel Jones kept it, he had Chris Myrick out in space with two defenders. He probably could have picked up, you know, six, seven yards possibly. And then the very next play, Kafka aligned split back motion Saquon Barkley into the backfield. And then they go into the mesh point. Saquon Barkley reads the defender, sees him step right into Saquon Barkley's face. Daniel Jones reads the defender, that is. And then Daniel Jones just tucks it and reads the two blocks. They pull two guys to that side, a little bit of quarterback power, quarterback counter, if you want to call it that, picks up, I think, what, six yards. And then Daniel Jones scrambles and he came up short, about a yard short. And I felt like Daniel Jones did that like three different times where he was scrambling and then he just slid a yard short. But I will say this, Dan, as much as you want him to get that third down marker, I'm glad he's sliding because... You can't get injured in week one. We, we've seen this. This is the kind of quarterback who needs to get down whenever there's impending danger. And I think they've taught him, or at least they're coaching him throughout, like, this is what we want from you this season. This is what you, we saw from you in the past on film as far as sliding or not sliding in certain situations. This is what we want for you. Because 
The run game for Daniel Jones, this is, and I love to see this, by the way, as well. Nick, kudos again, Dable and Kafka. They're not going to get. They're not going to get scared with Daniel Jones in his contract season. They had six design run. They had six runs for him. They weren't all designed, but six. He ran the ball six times in this game. I expect that to be the case moving forward. Maybe even some more runs than that in some games, in some situations, maybe some fewer. But they're going to use him as a runner. That's part of what you. I mean, it's a great way. A like you said to keep uh, the defense off guard. To keep to keep in the example you brought up earlier, Nick, where they don't have that kind of defender or Saquon Barkley has one fewer defender to worry about there because the, that defender is accounting for Daniel Jones. Just good things from that standpoint. But ultimately, I do feel like even on these slides, I feel a little like Ooh, nervous at times yeah. because it's like he's weirdly sliding like and somehow his head's going forward at all times and his helmet's like just slamming into contact. I don't feel I feel like he, it's just not like the same way that Russell Wilson slides or Kyler Murray slides. It's better in a sense, but I still think there's some work to be done to protect himself. But it's not a graceful slide. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's not, a graceful not a graceful. Slide. And weirdly enough, that head keeps going like right into contact the helmet. So that has to stop. We don't want a concussion. But let's get to the Giants' second possession. And again, we're going to talk about these first three possessions um, just to kind of see what didn't go right and maybe some things they can go from. I thought on the second possession there were a few more plays that stood out to me. Um, the first play. Look, you can credit the defense all you want for getting the free blitzer here, but I think if we're going to call a spade a spade, Nick, it is somewhat not, it is a, an example of Daniel Jones kind of having a little bit of a slow release and more importantly, issues with ball placement and velocity when he's forced off platform because I just don't see any real realistic scenario when I watch this on film and I kind of slowed it down where this ball should be grounded into the dirt. What were your thoughts on that throw that really skipped into the receiver? I agree with you. I think NFL quarterbacks, and I'm not saying Daniel Jones isn't an NFL quarterback. I'm just saying this play wasn't Daniel Jones' best play. Typically see Sterling Shepard coming over the middle of the field. So just for context, the the play was a play action to the boundary. So Daniel Jones is going to boot, he's going to roll, or he's going to roll out, I should say, to the field side. And you're going to have receivers coming across the formation. Okay. And you're going to have Kadarius Tony running from basically an H-back position pre-snap to the boundary. Then going with Daniel Jones on his rollout to the flat. And what that does is brings the linebacker up to Kadarius Tony, opens up a huge void because the other linebacker blitzes right into Daniel Jones's face. But now there's a huge void in the middle of the field where Sterling Shepard is. And I wish that he was able to put that football on Sterling Shepard because he releases his football and he's not even really hit yet, but he's falling yeah. back and avoiding Long's hit. And then Long makes contact with him. Daniel Jones falls and the ball just kind of skips into Sterling Shepard. But that's the kind of throw that I expect an NFL quarterback to make. But it's difficult when you're rolling out. And if you're not accurate throwing on the run, which Daniel Jones typically is not, then that's a really difficult pass for him. So I wish he could really maximize this type of opportunity because it's something that we haven't really seen all that often from him. Yeah, and I would, I, if I'm going to be honest about it, Nick, from a traits-based standpoint, this is probably number one for me uh, of my concerns when it comes to Daniel Jones from a long-term aspect. It's can he really get better at throwing off platform? Um, I'm not so sure that's something you can improve. It doesn't really seem to me like it's something you can improve. It feels like a natural arm talent thing. Um, and it's just something that's been a major issue for him his entire career. So can you win with a quarterback who can't throw off platform? Yes. Tom Brady doesn't throw off platform ever, right? I mean, Peyton Manning rarely, if ever, threw off platform. Drew Brees actually did throw a little bit more off platform than we probably remember, especially earlier in his career because he was a more of an athlete than people realize. But for the most part, those quarterbacks don't throw off platform. So it's not a necess necessity, but if you're not going to be able to throw off platform, 
with any kind of accuracy or velocity, then you really have to master the pocket passing. You really have to master the pocket manipulation, the processing to get the football out with quick release on time, accurately with velocity, because you're limited to that pocket when you are, you know, a struggling passer off platform. So just something I wanted to toss out there, Nick. Yeah, the next play, though, I felt like Daniel Jones really stepped up on that second and 10 because Shane Bowen designs a really nice simulated pressure where he drops the end man on the line of scrimmage to the field off and also pre-snap shows like the linebacker is going to blitz. So the Giants entire protection slides to the right, but instead it's that weak side linebacker that blitzes to the left and he comes in unabated. Nobody picks him up at all. Daniel Jones reads it and then just dumps the ball off the Saquon Barkley doesn't try to wait for the tight end Hudson to get into his curl or anything. He knows that he's going to have Saquon Barkley in space and he just takes an easy six yards. Thought that was a very mature play from Daniel Jones. Agreed. I completely agree with that. A good bounce back play there. A couple other plays that stood out to me that I wanted to get your take on. I thought that the Giants had a really nice play call on the third and five to match the personnel the Titans used there. The Titans came out with six defensive backs and the Giants really had Barkley on the left side with a tight end. And then they had the three man trips of the receivers on the other side. And I think it's because Barkley was the game plan for the Titans in this game just to completely shut him down, do everything it takes and be super. not work. But it did not work, and be, but I think that worked to their benefit on this play because if you if you watch this play, the Giants are only using half the field, and the Titans have half of these six defensive backs on the other side of the field dropping in and completely useless. A lot of the times when you have just this three-man route against, and there was more than a three-man route because the tight end went out and eventually Barkley leaked out, but when you have these kind of three-man routes against these four-man pass rushes with the seven guys dropping or the three-man pass rushes with the eight guys dropping, it's like, ugly as hell to watch on the film, right? Like you look at that all 22 view, view and you're like, there is nowhere to throw this ball. But I thought the Giants did a good job here. Mike Kafka kind of putting them in a situation where they eliminated a lot of these defenders the Titans used to drop here and gave it and gave a potential, you know, window for the quarterback to throw into. I also think this is somewhat of a choice type of route by Wandell Robinson. So mm-hmm. this was the Wandell Robinson conversion, Wandell Robinson's first catch in his NFL career. So basically they run a seven route with the number two receiver on the line of scrimmage. And Wando Robinson goes out and realizes, I think the coverage that it's zone coverage. So he pivots back inside and then finds a void in the zone. He works through like three different defenders zone goes kind of across Daniel Jones's face and then just sits right between the two middle hook defenders and provides a target for Daniel Jones. That was a really high processing play from Wandell Robinson and plays like this are the reason why this coaching staff is in love with this kid. Okay. This is just a slight adjustment on his route, recognizing the coverage and then providing a safety blanket for his quarterback. I love stuff like this and I hope he can get healthy and get back out there. Cause I think he can be a big contributor on this team. I think he did an excellent job breaking that down, Nick. It's a really savvy play from a veteran receiver to find the soft spot in the zone. And what I really liked about this play was not just that decision and that ability and and nuance to Wandell Robinson on this play. It was Daniel Jones because what he did on this, which he didn't do on the first miss that he skipped to the wide receiver was he reset his feet and gave himself a balanced space to throw from. And then he connected on the pass to Wandell Robinson and the ball placement was great. And the velocity was great because when he can reground himself and throw from a balanced base, Jones is still a pretty solid thrower of the ball. I would say he's a slightly above average thrower when he's throwing from a balanced base. And so I really like the throw from Jones on this one. I thought it was right in kind of that 
back shoulderish area away from the contact, away from didn't like throw him into the coverage and get him killed, uh, but also put it put the ball on with a very heavy, solid ball with good good velocity on that one. So I thought that was excellent on this drive. Started to get a little momentum going with that play design. Then you saw a little bit of Kafka's creativity with the end around of James. I kind of wish this was Tony, and I kind of wish they used a better sniffer or a different kind of player as the sniffer than Myrick. Uh, but it's year one of the Joe Shane era, and we're going to, you know, it's probably not going to be those two running this play over and over, even for the rest of this season. But I didn't think it was a good job by the Giants to come out with a creative play here. Um, it didn't it didn't ultimately work all that well, but I like the play call. I'm fine with an end around type of play call, but you're right. It didn't really work. It was just really well played by the Titans defense. You're running it to the boundary. You have the strong safety kind of rotate down to the strength where you have this kind of reduced bunch where Chris Myrick, Sterling Shepard, and Richie James are all there. So you're getting numbers down to the strong side, and then you're running to the weak side, the boundary side as well. But you know what? Evan Neal kind of goes up and, and, and isolates a linebacker, and then that leaves two defensive linemen to be blocked by Chris Myrick. And usually Richie James can outrun those guys, but both those guys kind of stretch Richie James out. Richie James might have been able to cut it back upfield, but that's kind of Monday morning quarterbacking. So I'm not going to really knock the guy for that, but it was just really well played by those two big Titans defenders who are probably like pushing 300 pounds. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's talk about the second and eight sack here, Nick, because I'm bringing it up right now on my all 20 or, or on the on the film that we're watching. I felt like this was probably the first example of a play Daniel Jones would wish he would have, with the exception of the throw he missed earlier where he skipped, skipped the ball in, a play he would wish he would have back. Agree. Look, I, as I said in the tweet, I am not blind. I see that the left guard is getting blown up here, and I see that. Ultimately, there's a bit of a mix up here because it looks like Bradison's going to help Thomas out with a double team and it leaves Bud Dupree free and Glowinski. But but if you look at the play, there is initial penetration on Glowinski, but he does a really good job to recover and he does stay in front of the fender ultimately. So I just want Jones in these situations. What Jones ends up doing is seeing the, the immediate pressure, feeling it from Glowinski and seeing it and then bailing by running kind of forward and ultimately in some ways running into a sack. What I want him to do is really ground himself, stay in that pocket, kind of maybe watch tape of what like the Brady's and the Russell Wilson's, the really good pocket manipulators do. You don't have to bail there. You can slide, you can reset, and it can be subtle little movement because eventually here, Bredesen regains himself and, and, and wins the block, like stays in front of his defender. Ultimately, there's an issue, obviously, with debris coming free. So Jones would have had to ground himself, really make the decision on where he wants to throw the ball and then deliver it. And he's probably going to get a little bit of a hit coming in from Dupree, maybe late, but maybe on time. But it just decision he makes here is just not one that's going to be a winning decision over time to quickly kind of panic. And, and as you watch Jones, there's a lot of like finickiness, I guess, with the footwork. It's a lot. It's a lot of uh, ramped up type of type of footwork where he's just kind of moving his feet, moving his feet, moving his feet, and then making decision kind of go forward here. Um, so I wanted to know what you thought of this second and eight sack. And do you think it's just more on the offensive line or is there some validity here to Jones kind of maybe needing to do a better job of manipulating the pocket? Well, they have a dagger concept dialed up downfield that takes a little bit of time to really materialize and by the time jones hits his back foot that pressure is in his face i don't really fault jones for this i think jones is trying to sidestep that that player and glowinski honestly yeah he gets pushed back bullied a little bit but if you watch the play he gets tripped up he trips over feliciano's foot and then somehow regains his balance just to get in the way of number 94 and i think at that time 
when Daniel Jones hits that back foot, sees Glowinski getting pushed back, he tries to step up and around, but that's when Feliciano allows Bud Dupree to kind of defeat him. And then Bud Dupree is right in the face of Daniel Jones. If there were routes open, like if Chris Myrick's route was open or if Tanner Hudson's route was open, I would agree with you and just say, you know, check the football down there and live to fight another day. But nothing was really open downfield. So I don't really fault Daniel Jones too much on his ability to try and, and get around that because it was just it seemed to me like a confluence of, of things that kind of worked against him. I know what he's trying to do here, but that deeper play concept did not help him out when the pressure was in his face. For sure, Nick. I know what you're saying. I don't ultimately think there were many solutions in this play, but in these situations, for me, I'd rather just see the, the quarterback kind of stay in that spot. I don't think ultimately there needs to be all this kind of movement when you're in the pocket uh, as far as just, you know, I guess I see what you're saying. He's trying to get around it. It's just going to be so hard in this situation to get around it. He tried that on a few other occasions in this game and, 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 and all times it led to either a sack, almost a sack force fumble. So just negative situations. I think it's at times you have to kind of ground your feet, stand your ground and, and, and throw the ball out of bounds or throw the ball in a spot where it can't be intercepted instead of taking the sack. Cause ultimately the sack does derail the drive. Cause he does a much better job on the very next play on a third and 19 of sliding. I thought in the pocket and manipulating the pocket. I thought it was like night and day to me, at least I know we, we kind of saw this differently, which is fine. But to me, it was kind of night and day and he finds James it's it's, but it's for a 14 yard gain on a third and 19. So really that sack does take them at turn this drive into no points. It does, man. But on that second and eight play, it's just little things like this I love to see on film. Kevin Byard is one of the most underrated players in the NFL. And I know he didn't have a huge impact in this game, but if you watch him, he sees the tight end, I think it's Tanner Hudson, run that drag route and then understands what route concepts are going to come and that nothing is going to be leaking into his responsibility that the linebacker in front of him can't handle. So he just darts from his place on the field, which is to outside of the hash, all the way to the other side of the field, on the opposite side of the hash to undercut the dagger concept. And if Daniel Jones threw the football there, that might've been a pick. Now, Daniel Jones at this point was already getting sacked basically, but I just love the processing from smart football players who I don't know if it's extemporizing or if it's just them recognizing what's going on and then putting themselves in a position to make a play. And I just kind of wanted to tip my cap to Bayard, who I feel like is very underappreciated nationally. Yeah. Byard is one of the best safeties in the NFL and really has been since he entered the NFL. I remember when he came out in that draft, he was someone I had my eye on. Just like one of those kind of safeties you felt like had the ability to play the deep half, but also kind of play up at the line of scrimmage. And those guys are so rare. They're the unicorn types. I really do think the Giants have one in McKinney as well. Let's yeah. move on to the third possession because, again, the Giants didn't end up scoring on that one. Another possession that kind of didn't go their way, this third possession I felt like on this person's end, I want to get your take on this, Nick. Um, so obviously, I'd love to hear uh, your evaluation of this. And I thought it was a little bit of an odd read by Daniel Jones here on the keeper. I think he's, a, I assume he's reading the edge. Um, and But it is the same edge here that has enough time to tackle DJ and is coming left to right here. I feel like if he gives that ball to Barkley, it puts Barkley in a one-on-one -on -one with the second-level defender who's kind of a little slow to scrape off there. And we've already seen what Barkley can do with a one-on-one -on -one in space. Uh, Jones, obviously, is not the same level athlete. But I just feel like with the defender coming from left to right here and and Jones lined up in the shotgun on the right and Barkley on his left side, I feel like the better decision was to give the ball here. What do you think Jones was reading here? 
Yeah, so his read is that defender. And if that defender pinches up, then he keeps it. Like he he's did. just so supposed he, to avoid him, basically. Yeah. He's supposed to get around him. Yeah, I just think Weaver played this phenomenally. Okay. So you have both, yeah, the backside guard, the backside tackle. They both pull. Weaver reads that. So he steps down. He sees them pull. He steps down. Then he sees Daniel Jones go in the mesh point. He just attacks the mesh point, basically runs center line onto the mesh point. So Daniel Jones is taught there that the backside pursuit defender is on Saquon Barkley. You keep it and you run around him. But Weaver just really anticipated it well. Right as Jones made the decision to keep it, Weaver just plants the foot in the ground and just explodes right into Jones and Jones can't avoid him. That's a really good play by the kid. Great breakdown by you. I wonder if there is any game theory to it. I know, like, look, he's taught based on the defender's positioning to keep the ball there. But I wonder if there's a little game theory to it. Like, Weaver knows if he shows what he shows there, the quarterback's going to have to read it a certain way and keep the ball, and then he can scrape back and make the tackle on him. I'm I just curious if there's any kind of game theory that goes into the zone reads. I'm sure there's not, as you kind of broke down. It's kind of you read it one way, but I wonder if Weaver was trying to set up Jones there to think like the decision was to keep the ball, knowing the full and well the whole time that Jones was going to make that decision. He was going to work back to make the tackle on Jones. Yeah, I just think he played it excellently. Yep, and he was just, like, you could see how he like starts off the line of scrimmage with a lot of tempo, kind of going full steam at the mesh point. And then once Saquon Barkley's in the mesh point, he just stops and then he just sees where the football is and attacks. Okay, let's get into the second and 15 here. Another uh, drive derailing play here for the Giants in the early going. So here's another example. And again, uh, if if you ever see these differently, I'd love to hear it from your standpoint. And, and, it, and it, I think ultimately, there, in some of these cases, there really isn't a right or wrong. It's just how each person sees it. I think this is another example where Jones really should be sliding and manipulating the pocket a little bit better. Because Andrew Thomas really does have him covered here. Like Thomas is, is, is not, it's not the most amazing rep from Thomas here, but he gets in front of his defender and there is a little crease for Jones to kind of slide there into that. And again, it's not like I'm expecting him or any, I don't want these quarterbacks to be making some kind of crazy movement with their feet and really just like jumping in and out. It's just kind of that subtle movement like that you see from the Brady's and the Russes and all the good pocket manipulators where they kind of get themselves into a little bit of a crease and then can ground their, their feet and make a throw. Ultimately, I thought there was a throw to be made to 88 here on the on the stick route on the comeback, but he would have had to slide into that space and re- and ground his feet and then deliver the ball. Instead, it, he does make the decision again to try to run around the pressure and, and try to get something with his feet. And ultimately, uh, it, it turns into another negative play. What were your thoughts on this one? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. 
you may start noticing there are strange tall boys of beer in the bottled water section of your local stores. Well, it's not beer. Actually, mountain spring water from the Alps, and it's called liquid death. You may see your coworkers cracking these open at the 9 a.m. stand-up meeting, but again, not beer. They're just parched, dehydrated, or just downright thirsty, and they're drinking the new mountain spring water brand called liquid death. Go get Liquid Death at your local Woodman's, 7-Eleven, Roundy's, or Hy-Vee, or find a Liquid Death retailer near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com. Just use the promo code BIGBLUE. So go to liquiddeath.com slash BIGBLUE if you want to try this tasty new Liquid Death. What's going on, Big Blue Banter listeners? Do you like to place bets and find ways to optimize your betting experience? Well, then OddsTrader.com is the place for you. OddsTrader is a place to compare odds from all the major sports books. You can also compare the different sign-up codes and promotions from sports books to get the best deal. OddsTrader offers handicapping, play-by-play updates, player statistics, key game statistics, live scoring and tracking, projected game day, weather, and Bet Tracker allows you to keep records of all your games and betting activity. So if you like to place bets and you want to get the most out of that experience, go to oddstrader.com and use the promo code BLUEWIRE. That's oddstrader.com slash BLUEWIRE. OddsTrader, the number one site for all your game day bets. Yeah, I think you broke that down well. I think Daniel Jones probably didn't maximize this opportunity here. It sucks that he had pressure in his face. Joshua Zudu just got beat off the line of scrimmage by the defender that was over the top of him. That's going to happen in the NFL. And as a quarterback, you have to figure out a way to make a play in that type of situation, or at least give yourself an opportunity to make a play. And instead, he kind of just ran into Andrew Thomas's guy. And I guess that's going to be a sack credited to Andrew Thomas, but there wasn't too much Thomas could do. Oh, that at that be point. Thomas's fault. I guess that no. is that's devastating. Yeah, it should not be Thomas's fault, but... I love the play call here by Kafka because you're in this second and 15 situation and we've talked so much ad nauseum, Dan, about the angle concept, about the angle route to the running back. Get the running back in space, whether it's against man coverage, hopefully against man coverage because it's the way to definitely get the most out of this type of play. And that's what the Titans were in. And then you just basically run him like he's going out to the flat and then you angle him over the middle of the field. Texas concept, which is a little bit yep. different because there's another route involved, but the angle route. Saquon Barkley was right there, but the, the pass was never completed. You also had both of those players releasing out into the flat. I think it was Myrick as the t- inline tight end who was inside of Tanner Hudson, who was aligning as a big wide receiver a lot in this game, which is interesting. And then Saquon Barkley and Myrick releasing into the flat. Tanner Hudson runs that curl that you were talking about. What does it do to the underneath defenders who read Barkley and Myrick? They both pinch up. So that's why Tanner Hudson was open on that play, man. So if there was a clean pocket there and if Daniel Jones maybe was a little bit more poised in that situation, he could have probably found Tanner Hudson and that would have set them up in at least a third and five, third and four type of situation. Yeah, I feel like even if he doesn't want to ground his feet there, or even if he doesn't want to slide to manipulate there, either left or right, I'm watching the playback now. It does look like he actually has an ability to slide right here. Even if he just grounds his feet and throws that angle right away to Saquon Barkley, there's a chance Barkley can just break back to the middle there and make a play out of it. Uh, It's just ultimately a lot. It it does require, and he does a good job of this. This is one of the better things Jones does, which is standing in the pocket, taking hits while he's delivering the football. But there are times where he feels that immediate pressure where it's just kind of right off the snap like that. And 
looks to kind of beat it with his legs. Ultimately, I want to try to beat that with his mind and with, and with his arm. And we'll see if that obviously continues as we move forward, because I'm sure the Giants would rather him win that way as well. But let's get to the fourth possession here. If the Giants go scoreless on their first three, this is when they start to finally get something going until obviously there was a strip sack, which is unfortunate. But this is where they finally seem to get something going here on offense. And it starts with a first and 10 play that stood out to me, Nick, that I wanted to call out here because it's not something that was flashy by any means. It was a four-yard gain for the Giants, but this was a big moment for me when I'm watching the film in realizing what Saquon Barkley is potentially going to be this year as an impact player for the Giants if he can stay healthy. Because Barkley here on this play, I've seen it happen so many times watching his film since he was drafted by the Giants. The, the interior offensive lineman gets blown back right off the snap, right basically into him, and I've seen him so many times throughout his career just see that blowback and try to bounce it outside. But instead, what does he do? He jump cuts and gets vertical back inside, lowers his pad level, and turns this into a plus gain, a four-yard gain, and gets him into a second-and-six situation. That, to me, showed a glimpse of what was to come because as we poured our way through the film here, Nick, we saw so many more countless examples of Barkley getting vertical, lowering his pads, blasting through contact, and again, the key here getting vertical on these runs, not trying to bounce outside. So I was wondering if that play kind of caught your attention at all too. It did. But then a little bit later on in the game, there were so many other plays that caught my attention, but this was one of those first glimpses of, Oh wow. He's very decisive here. He just put his foot in the ground. He saw 97 in the backfield and just jump cut right around the offensive tackles block. Cause this was a stretch zone type of run. He found the cutback lane and then also located the block of Daniel Bellinger, who I felt like was doing a good job all game, just positioning himself in a manner that really allowed the running back to get the most yards out of the runs. Cause Daniel Bellinger, he's not going to own the point of attack right now. This kid, this kid's a rookie tight end that rarely ever happens if it ever happens. But I do feel like he's always in position to make the correct block. And I felt like he did on this play and four yard gain. It, it's nothing to write home about. If this play happened last year, we probably would have talked about it. Yes. In a negative way. No, no, no. Oh, I'm you're saying, saying if we'd even just gotten yeah. this play, we would have been like, yeah, look. Yeah, we would have been like, look, yeah, Barkley's showing right. decisiveness, man. And in the and in the reality of this scope of this game, it's one of the like least impactful plays in a, in a game full of so many impactful plays by this individual player. So that's a great point by you as well. And it just shows goes to show what could potentially be from Saquon Barkley this season. And on the very next play, the Giants started to get something going with their running game, starting to get something going on offense. I wanted to get your take on this because I watched this back a few times on film, like probably like three, four, five, six times just to kind of see if I could figure it out. Did you think this was a hold by Bellinger? Because yes. if it was, okay, it was, and we got away with one. Because if not, oh, it was just incredible job to, to seal the edge here by Bellinger. I watched this play and I was like, oh, wow, that is first off great play by Josh Azuda. But yeah, Bellinger grabs 99 Weaver, the guy we were just talking about like 10 minutes ago. He grabs his jersey, has it just tugged, fully tugged. But yeah, that, that would we got away with one on that. Finally, play. we a, get away with one. Exactly. It doesn't <laughs> seem like it happens. But this is a counter run where the Giants pull that backside guard. Saquon Barkley waits for the block to materialize. You know, the counter, it's basically like a delayed release for the running back steps in one direction and then takes the handoff in the mesh point. And Josh Azudu, man, he really picks up this linebacker, Zach Cunningham, who penetrates the C-gap really, really quickly. He just turns him. And this is something we saw Josh Azudu do a lot. 
at UNC, Dan. He he he's able to locate the upfield shoulder of a penetrating linebacker or a defensive lineman, and then just swivel his hips. He's very very fluid, man. Swivel his hips and use very good footwork to create the seal, and that's exactly what he does on this play. Josh Azudu had an up and down game. His pass protection was a little shaky. He was getting bullied around a little bit, but he had certain run blocks that were wildly impressive. And when you consider the fact that this kid is just a freaking kid, and this was his first exposure to regular season NFL football, it really makes me excited about his future. I couldn't agree more with you, Nick. We talked about the biggest takeaway for us when the film, like what was the thing we noticed most in the film? It was Mike Kafka and the job he did. For me, up there, maybe second most, would might maybe be Joshua Zudu. Yeah, there were some ugly reps in bass production, but this is not going to be the only run run blocking rep that we talk about. There are more that we're going to get to, including an absolute derailment pancake on a Giants touchdown run that looked insanely explosive, powerful, and the key things that you brought up that really stand out to me the most and give me kind of a feel that, wow, Nick, maybe this guy could be a genuine gem found in round three. Like it ultimately may end up being that he's just this dominant, excellent run blocker within the scheme and maybe a so-so pass protector, though I do think like you've broken down all the times in the past when we evaluated his film from UNC and his preseason stuff, he can evolve into a pretty good pass protector as well. But the run blocking, it really flashes high level upside. And it's really, to me, the traits that you just went over there. It's how nimble and how good his feet are for somebody who's that size and that powerful. And he has a lot of explosion too. So he combines the explosiveness, the overall size, and then really nimble, good feet for his size. And what have we always said throughout time, Nick, when we've broken down offensive linemen in every draft, when we talked about Rashawn Slater in past years, we talk about all Duke Merriweather and all the people who break that Brandon Thorne, all the people who break down offensive line film. They always come back to one thing as the most important thing, the footwork of these guys. And I think that's a really good sign that we're already noticing that being a trending up thing for Josh Zudu. And what you said, which was true, his first actual NFL experience against a Titans offensive line that has Jeffrey Simmons on it, right? Like a guy who's just literally one of the best players right now in the NFL on the defensive side of the ball. And so just excellent stuff there. I'm really glad you broke that down. And obviously we can get to next Something else I just wrote in my notes, which is just plenty of pre-snap motion. We talked about on the top of the pod, 38 of 58 plays of pre-snap motion. Just excellent stuff. But want to break down now the strip sack here because I think at the time people were like, there wasn't much Daniel Jones could have done on this play. And ultimately, when I watch the film, Nick, I think they're 100% correct. There's just not much he can do. And I don't really blame anyone here. It's just an incredible pass rush move and an incredible finish by the type of interior defensive lineman who I think in my opinion, deserves to be paid in that 20 plus million dollar range. If you're going to allocate that chunk of your cap space to an IDL, I think he needs to be making these kinds of plays and finishing these kinds of plays. I saw a breakdown from Brandon Thornick of the week one effort by, by Grady Jarrett, another IDL who I think deserves that kind of money. And he was just doing these exact types of things. So ultimately I chalk this up to a great individual play by a great individual player. Is there anything you saw on this play that, uh, you wanted to break down, or did you feel like there was anything different in your evaluation of Daniel Jones on this play? There wasn't really much he could do, but right. Simmons is just, his initial quickness is too much for Joshua Zudu to handle, and he hits Joshua Zudu with that club on the outside arm and wins just basically right off the snap. But this is also a game, man. This is a, a twist, and Andrew Thomas doesn't realize it's a twist because Bud Dupree is, is really patient with the way he kind of explodes back inside. So Zudu, once he loses through the B-gap, 
there's no way for anybody to really help him because Simmons is just so damn quick. Feliciano, he's a wily veteran, man. He's savvy, dude. He recognized what was going on and he saw it and he attempted to help, but Simmons is just stupid flexible, bro. He bends around three Giants blockers and Crazy. nails Daniel Jones. It was one of the craziest individual efforts you'll see on the defensive line. Yeah, you're taking advantage of a rookie, but this is also, like I said, a twist. And typically, once that guy penetrates a B gap, there should be a switch. But since it was so quick, man, I, I can't really fault Andrew Thomas. And, you know, Joshua, you just lost, bro. You, you just lost. It's going to happen sometimes. Yeah, you're going to lose to players like Jeffrey Simmons. And it's just crazy to me that he's so good that he just closes the play out, too, with that rip swat to get the ball out of Jones's hands and cause the turnover. So a little bit of movement there on the offense. Obviously, the turnover slows things down with the, with the fumble here. And then we get to the fifth possession here by the Giants, another one where ultimately they don't end up getting too much going here. So we have the first big missed opportunity, though, of the offensive game for the Giants here. And it came with 529 in the second quarter here on a first and 10. Daniel Jones runs the play action, gets to the top of his drop. And by the time he gets to the top of his drop, Nick, as you watch this back on film, I mean, I'm watching this over and over and over again here and seeing the same thing every time. You see a wide open David Sills who beats the coverage on the vertical route here. And this could ultimately, as I'm watching it right now, be an easy walk and touchdown. There's a safety who can maybe catch up to him, but I doubt it because he's coming from the complete other side of the field. And you also have Sterling Shepard, who at that point is open on the deep over because that safety is realizing now this could also be because he's reading Jones here and the check down to Barkley as Jones kind of looks flips his hip backs and looks towards what could be the deep over there but honestly even with the safety position where he is that deep over is probably a completion too for the Giants and that's like a 15 16 yard and it looks like ultimately like an 18 to 20 yard chunk play so I think the problem here Nick as I watch this play back I'm curious to get your take here is that Jones is really predetermined on this play to hit his back foot off the play action and check down to Barkley. Maybe that's based on the design. He feels like that deep over and that vert from Sills will kind of create some kind of gap or some kind of void in the middle of the field where these Texan or these Titans second and third level defenders are kind of trying to play the vertical game. But he there's just too much time in the pocket for him to make this decision here to check down to Barkley. Then it really does feel based on watching it, like it was a predetermined read by Jones. And this is an issue that's been there for Jones his entire career. He does not see in the field well post-snap. And it's not a great example of, of something you want to see here from, from Jones in his fourth year. Yeah, I don't know if it's as much predetermined as it is, okay, the linebackers are dropping to depth. Just get the football off the safe on Barkley. That doesn't excuse it, though. Because you're right. I think Sterling Shepard is open there. Photos going around Twitter and stuff. Those linebackers are pinching up because they see Kadarius, Tony, and Saquon Barkley right in front of the line of scrimmage. And Daniel Jones basically rearing back. So maybe they would have dropped to a depth to remove Sterling Shepard. But there might have been an opportunity, especially since nobody was in the deep half where David Sills was. So Sterling Shepard would have eventually ran into that area. But Daniel Jones wasn't aware of that, obviously, because if he was aware of that, he would have threw the ball to David Sills, who had about 10 yards of separation on Christian yeah. Fulton because there was a broken coverage. And Dan, why was there a broken coverage? There was a broken coverage because Mike Kafka motioned Kadarius Tony right before the snap to set up on a stack with David Sills, and it confused the Titans secondary, where Christian Fulton felt like the safety was going to handle that deep half responsibility. And that's not what happened. The safety just basically pressed David Sills and then just went and looked at the tight end Tanner Hudson leaking into the flat. And Christian Fulton has his hands in the air like, what the heck? Right. That was an 
easy touchdown if Daniel Jones recognized the coverage miss. I mean, that's that's one you got to have, man. But, you know, you chalk it up as a loss and sometimes it happens. But, you know, you wish it didn't happen as frequently as it seems to to happen with Daniel Jones. I don't think it's like the worst problem of Daniel Jones, but there are times where he leaves plays on the field. And this this was a big one. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's interesting because it uh, with you broke it down so well with what Kafka did there with the pre-snap motion. He almost creates like a natural pick between the Titans defenders. You see them run into each other trying to coverage and trying to frantically figure out where they want to be when this coverage. Just such a great design by Kafka here who deserves kudos. And again, it's not like we want to knock Jones for this over and over, but you, you if you, when you leave these types of plays on the field, it's tough when you have a game like this where the Giants really didn't have this many these many types of vertical shots designed and there were very few opportunities for them to really attack the and not opportunities it was part of the game plan and obviously it was altered when they saw that they had no option to buck Jeffrey Simmons one-on-one at the left guard position at all and there was just no way they were going to be able to do it but they did find one here they found an opportunity and the great quarterbacks are not going to miss this let's be completely honest about the situation Nick the great quarterbacks probably aren't missing this. Do they miss this sometimes? Because I had uh, one of the, you know, one of the people come back at me like, check it out. Like great quarterbacks miss this too. Do they miss this sometimes? Sure. But what Nick said is kind of true here. They don't miss it as often as it seems that Daniel Jones has in, 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 in his years with the Giants. And, and I think that will hopefully improve as time goes. But I don't know. I, I keep going back to what these discussions I've had with the people who, who break down quarterback film and who are so much more knowledgeable position than me. And some people really do believe that seeing the field post snap, that ability to have that vision is more natural than it is learned. And so we'll have to see. Hopefully it's something. And, and I wonder if part of this is also as I'm watching this playback now, if you think he's panic, not panicking, but a little frantic again in the pocket on his drop back because he really never settles his feet here. He hitches into the throw to Barkley. Ultimately, I just want to see one drop back, Nick, where he kind of hits that back foot, plants those feet. Cause really, if you watch Brady again, I'm coming back to Brady all the time because he's a really good example. If you watch Brady in the pocket, he really doesn't do that much moving around. You know, he kind of plants his, gets his feet grounded and, and, and goes from there and just kind of adjusts his body and his positioning from there. Uh, ultimately, I kind of wish Jones hit his drop the top of his drop back and just delivered the football from that point. I just wish he checked to see what the heck was going on on the other side of the field, right, but maybe right. it wasn't in his read and it's just not something that he felt or, or saw. So it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. But I did like how Mike Kafka dialed up a sale concept to start this drive on, on the first and 10. So this is like midway through right. the second quarter and a sale concept is a three level route concept where you have a clear out, then you have a seven route. And then you have someone leaking into the flat. And this was built off the play action. So you had Richie James, who was the number one receiver, motion into a stack with, I think, Sterling Shepard. He ran the seven. Then you have Sterling Shepard running the the one route, the clear out route, the vertical. And then Saquon Barkley was wide open with like 10 to 12 yards of separation, just leaking out off the play action in the flat. And I, the sale concept works. It's like a flood. It, it is a flood concept. It works against zone and the Titans are a heavy zone defense, especially on early down. So I felt like that was a good way to get some easy yards. They picked up seven on that play. Yeah, exactly. Let's get to the third and three here. It was the play that kind of got batted down at the line of scrimmage and ultimately ended out ended the drive. I watched this back a few times over and over. I don't feel like there was too much the Giants could have done on this one. Do you think there was anything Jones kind of missed or do you think that this was maybe just a good chess match by the Titans on their side of the ball to kind of take away what the Giants want to do here on this third and short. What do you think happened here? Yeah, they sent a fast three. I'm trying to see who it was. I think it was Matt Burita. So fast three, I've explained this before, but when, when there are two receivers is two by two set, right? And then you have a running back in the back backfield right before the snap, you send the running back in motion and then you snap the football. 
And now that's going to change defensive responsibilities depending on the coverage that they have. Now they're just running man coverage and then the defender follows Matt Breida across the formation. But what I mean by fast three is there's already two receivers over there. You have the number one, the outside receiver, the number two, the slot receiver. And now you have a third receiver coming into that coverage, which could totally manipulate the responsibilities of the defense. So I like that aspect of it, but it's just man coverage here. The Giants are running deep horizontal crossers, something that they did all preseason, something that they did throughout this game as well. It's just covered really well and Daniel Jones tries to just dump it off to one of the drag routes and it just gets blocked yep I think that's a fair breakdown all right so we can move because the Giants then got the ball back for their last possession of the first half and didn't really have much time I'd say let's move on to the second half where the offense starts to wake up and it really starts right away and the Giants kick things off with the 68 yard breakaway run from Saquon Barkley so Nick you broke this down on Twitter but for those who didn't see break this play down and what just what how it was made possible for the Giants to break off this unbelievable run from Saquon Barkley. Yeah, I mentioned that at the top of the podcast a little bit. This was a little bit of an adjustment by Mike Kafka. He was using a lot of single pullers. He, he used a double puller on the the one quarterback power, the counter run, which you know, counter, you're going to have those two pullers. But on this specific run, they take the play side guards, like a G lead and the center. And they, and they rush him towards the boundary side. And it's just a halfback handoff at this point. And the Titans front, and they aligned in this front a lot, to the strength, which was the run side, they will have a three technique or a two technique. Sometimes they, they shift. And then on the back side, there is a one technique or a two-eye technique, depending. On this play, they have a two-eye technique to the backside, and then they have basically a two technique over Joshua Zudu. And it's going to be a pin-pull concept. So obviously Feliciano and Azudu are going to be pulling, like I said, right? So you're going to need Andrew Thomas to block that two technique down, and then you're going to need Mark Lewinsky to essentially reach block, which is, which is difficult. He's going to have to basically get to the outside shoulder of that two-eye technique. It's a difficult block. It's very, very hard for him in terms of just his footwork to, to get to that location and cut him off. But like I said earlier, he ends up following Daniel Jones like he's going to do, to do a bootleg type of play. So he doesn't even pay attention to Saquon Barkley. But basically at that point, you have Bud Dupree slant inside, and Daniel Bellinger just pins him to Andrew Thomas. So two defenders are eliminated. Now you have two offensive linemen kicking into space with Joshua Azudu removing Fulton, forcing Fulton upfield so he can't make a play on Barkley. And then Zach Cunningham is squared up with John Feliciano, and the scumbag just drives him into the ground like, like, like a madman. And 37, Amani Hooker, he tries to cut off the angle, but Saquon Barkley has so much burst, acceleration, and overall athletic ability that he just puts the jets on, and Hooker doesn't have the athletic ability to keep up. He just erases this safety's angle and then just maintains balance up the sideline. Incredible body control by Saquon Barkley. It was very good. But like I said a little bit earlier, this was a slight adjustment from Kafka. And a lot of these times when they employ two pullers or one puller or like which two pullers are going to employ is based on the defensive front that is shown. So if you're uncovered, you're going to pull on this play. John Feliciano is uncovered. So as long as Mark Lewinsky can cut off the angle of that two eye technique, then John Feliciano doesn't have to block down. And that's going to allow there to be a, a quicker time to have those two pullers kick into space because obviously Feliciano is closer to the play side than someone like a Mark Lewinsky. So that's why they, they change sometimes. The natural elite traits that Saquon Barkley has that were displayed on that play. One is being able to win in that phone booth and create separation breaking the outside. But two, more importantly to me, is that balance that he had along the sideline. I always see Saquon with that ability, at least when he's prime Saquon, like the 2018 version, like what the version we saw in week one on Sunday. 
his ability to, to really manipulate the sideline. He does a really good job of keeping his balance, staying smoothly, smoothly running around it, it, kind of in that area of the sideline and then keeping and, and maintaining his speed and momentum up the field, which is what he did. Now, he didn't break this one for a touchdown because Kevin Byard had a really good angle on him. But you could see he kind of had an idea there to fake a cut back into the inside to freeze Byard. There just was just not enough of an angle, which is fine. But I don't think that was any, had anything to do with a lack of acceleration or a lack of like prime Saquon. I know some people might have mentioned like, oh, I'm Saquon breaks up for a touchdown. It just wasn't there angle-wise. The really idea and confirmation that it was prime Saquon was already shown in his ability to kind of tightrope that sideline and burst and, and win in that phone booth originally to break to the outside. And the other thing that stands out is just, again, another good adjustment, but also another good play call. They keep putting Saquon Barkley throughout this game in situations where he can have a one-on-one. -on -one. And that's exactly what you want because Saquon Barkley wins one-on-one -on -one situations. That's something he can do when he's running in his, like the prime version of himself, like he did in this game. And that's how you have a running game. That's a weapon like you that's how you weaponize a run game by putting a player like Saquon Barkley in these one-on-one -on -one situations so just an awesome breakdown by you Nick and a really awesome play by the Giants a truly fun explosive play to watch but miss it dude I miss that kind of stuff yeah. and also Feliciano dude just absolutely kills Zach Cunningham like that was that was a great block by John Feliciano that was something that he did pretty well when he was in Buffalo and we got I gotta be honest Nick we talked a lot earlier in this podcast about who we were impressed on a flash based basis with Josh Azudu, I was pretty impressed overall, just focusing in on this offensive line when I looked at it from that end zone angle, run blocking wise, with John Feliciano as a run blocker. I think he's a pretty damn good run blocker. I think he's does a lot of the same things to me, at least in the run game that I liked about Nick Gates, always looking for work, working off double teams. Like you said, that scumbag type of mentality where he's just really physical up front. I'm going to get to a good job I thought he did on the touchdown run coming up when we break that down. Obviously, the, the real deal of that is, is Josh Azuto and the block that he made. But John Feliciano did a really good job on that play as well and the play you just broke down. But before we do that, let's talk about a few of the unheralded plays that came after the Saquon Barkley long, wrong, long run. And they're actually Matt Brita, who I thought did a really good job here to create yards on his next two plays. Do you want to break down either of those Brita plays? And were you also kind of impressed with what Brita was able to do? Oh, yeah. The nine-yard run by Brita was the very next play was excellent because it was a just simple power gap type concept where the backside guard pulls and Brita was going to read that, but Bud Dupree played it so well, kept everything tight that Brita just adjusted and cut backside. And then the weak side linebacker starts to fill the, the B gap. And Matt Brita basically explodes into the B gap, gets long and 51, that weak side linebacker, the will to commit to the B gap and then just bounces right around Evan Neal's block. And Evan Neal does a really good job kind of keeping 96 to Nico Autry in place to allow Matt Breida to bounce around him. I felt like the positioning of Evan Neal just kind of being a nuisance to Autry, who was a really good veteran in this league, was was impressive. But I loved how Matt Breida forced 51 into the hole and then just bounced right around and picked up nine yards because that could easily have been like a loss of one. It could have ended up killing the drive or settling for a field goal or something. So you're right. I think in terms of just an unsung play in the game. This was one of those little ones that just get forgotten, but a very nice adjustment by Brita. For sure. And now let's get to the touchdown run here because there's a lot to talk about here. 
I watched this play so many times, Nick, and I focused in on the block Joshua Suda had on strong 97 of the Titans. I mean, he just absolutely manhandles, pancakes him to the ground, and then gets up after the play and look at him. He's just celebrating it. He is so happy with the play that he made. The pancakes is due to the ground. And then I look at Feliciano right next to him, working off 97 first, coming off of him, then getting in the way of the rest of 51, kind of falling forward to get in the way of the rest of that, creating that kind of trash for these guys to not cut through. And then obviously the big one here is also Saquon Barkley, who just such just shows displays such an excellent vision here to cut back a really nice jump cut doesn't waste any space and then falls forward and dives through to the end zone and gets the football over. This was such a well-executed play between the Zudu pancake block, the Barkley cutback and everything else that went into it. What were your thoughts on this play? And was it as exciting to you as it was to me? Dude, when I saw this, I was like, ah, Strong's feet must have got tangled up or something. No, literally Joshua (laughs) Zudu just absolutely dominates this. Yeah, he had to eat Strong, that is. A double team. It was a combo. Sure. Feliciano and Azudu get hip to hip. Strong tries to anchor down. And then Feliciano sees long again, that linebacker penetrating. He comes right off the combo block. So now it's all Azudu. And Azudu just puts his feet in the ground, just drives strong down, man. That was such an impressive block. And you're right. Very impressive run adjustment vision wise and athletic ability, of course, from Saquon Barkley. And then also Andrew Thomas has to hold the point of attack against Bud Dupree. And not only does he do that, he makes the rushing lane much wider by driving Dupree backwards. And if you look at the space between Andrew Thomas and Joshua Azudu, bro, Dude, you could have freaking ran a Mack truck through that. There was so much space. I Two love Mack trucks. It looks that. like, honestly, like rewatching this play. There's such a huge gap, such a huge gap. It's not even like the Titans defenders were taken off guard. You know, it wasn't a deception. They knew this a was, was coming. Yeah. They knew a run was coming. This was, we are going to run the football. You know, we're running the football at this point, And I'm still going to drive you off your spot. Andrew Thomas, Bud Dupree reads this. Andrew Thomas drives him off the spot. Strong knows what's coming. Azudu plants him in the ground, buries him. He's Jimmy Hoffa. If this was in MetLife, Dan, he would be Jimmy Hoffa. He would be sleeping with Jimmy Hoffa right now. That's how much of a quality block this was from Azudu. He just annihilates the dude, gets up, celebrates it. You watch Barkley run through the end zone. Barkley just looks as... Like I had never seen that kind of emotion for Barkley in a long time. It was like a vin- feeling of vindication. Like, yes, I'm back. I can do this again. And I think the co- the cool thing that you brought up because I'm now watching it over and I didn't really pay attention to it enough the first time is Andrew Thomas here because Bud Dupree takes that a really good first step here. Like he reads this play right, takes a really good first step here, and Andrew Thomas completely eliminates that and takes him out of the play and creates an even wider zone, like you said, Nick. So I love that you brought that up. One final thing about this play, just because it's so fun and we love this. They motion Sterling Shepard back in. Okay, he doesn't make the most impactful block or anything, but he gets right in there, puts his helmet and his nose first, and blocks down on 31 of the Titans and celebrates with Barkley after and is just so excited. I freaking love Sterling Shepard, dude. He does so all do the dirty work. He never drops passes. He takes tons of hits over the middle. He hasn't yet, obviously, only had two receptions, but he's just everything I want from a Giants player. I don't give a crap what anyone says about the injuries. I don't care about the contract, which isn't even that much anymore. I'm so happy he's on this team this year. Bayard pops him on this play. This is one of those wide receiver insert plays. And then poor Daniel Bellinger, man. Poor one out for our boy Daniel Bellinger, Dan. Because on the backside of this play, he is tasked to block Danico Autry, who's like 285 pounds, and he gets freaking tossed to the ground. But you know what? He continued fighting throughout the play, and the Giants ended up scoring on the other side of the field, man. This is one of my favorite plays of the game, and it was just a simple four-yard run.
Yep. Easily one of the best plays of the game. I mean, look at what we just broke down. Thomas was amazing on it. Azuda was flashing insane upside on this. Barkley was amazing on it. Shepard did a little bit of a job here. Feliciano, I thought, was amazing on it, too. Um, so just all around great work by the Giants on this one. And they finally get in the end zone. They finally score a touchdown. They finally make us feel like, wait a second. Is this a game? Like, are the Giants going to have a shot here to maybe win this game? And so they get the ball back then on the eighth drive. Um, and let's first start with kind of that first play where the, the Giants are bring the pullers around and are blown up for a loss. What goes wrong on this play? Yeah, they're trying to pin pull Weaver 99, who had a really good game. He keeps everything so tight, and he basically does what the Giants defenders did. Now, the, the Giants linebackers, and we'll talk about this a lot on the defensive pod, they were taught to be just super aggressive, Dan. Shoot the gap, stop the run, stop the pullers. Do not allow them to turn the corner. Do not allow them to get in the space. Basically create a traffic jam. And that's exactly what Weaver does on this play. Because as Mark Glowinski goes to pull, Weaver meets him in the backfield and Glowinski doesn't get any kind of positioning on him. So basically Weaver eliminates both the pullers. And now it's just Saquon Barkley against like three defenders. And he tries to dance, which he should because there's nothing else he could do. Play gets absolutely annihilated because of another really good play by Weaver, who, you know what? Let's tip our cap to him a little bit, man. Really interesting to see it play out. But then we get to the next play here, Nick. And it's just so exciting because it brings us right back into the game. It was the touchdown throw by Daniel Jones to Sterling Shepard. I looked at this play over on the film, and what really stood out to me was two things. I thought Jones did an excellent individual job on this play. The first thing here that really stood out to me here was that Jones kept his eyes looking right to manipulate that safety, that middle of the field safety you see. And it was an interesting alignment that, I, that I'd like to hear from you about what, like, what kind of coverage this was pre-snap from the Titans based on where those safeties were aligned. But that one defender that he held, that one safety kind of kind of holding him to, to, to kind of keep him involved for that over by the Giants tight end. And then Jones flips his eyes back and makes the throw. And Jones doesn't let the trash at his feet kind of screw him up from you know, not getting everything he wants in this throw, not stepping into this throw. He puts a pretty damn good ball on Shepard. Like, yes, did Shepard have to stop to catch this throw? Sure. But when you consider all the factors here, one being that Jones had trash at his feet, being the Giants offensive lineman that was blown back into him, two being he doesn't really have, uh, and two being where the ball actually landed because it still ended up being a really far throw despite the fact that he wasn't exactly throwing from a balance base or, or at least not throwing from hitching into the throw and being stepping into the throw. It's a pretty damn good ball from Jones. And I'll tell you why I think that, Nick, because I again, I said this on the reaction pod and I'm sticking by it. There are so many examples I've seen where a quarterback tries to really put the perfect ball on the receiver in stride and overthrows him or puts it a little bit right puts it a little bit left into coverage and just in a position where the receiver can't make the throw. At least this throw landed right on the receiver. Did he stop for it? Sure. But that also allowed him to then make the cutback because all the defenders momentum is going forward to the stop the receiver and Sterling Shepard can then restart his momentum on the cutback on the inside. And this is ultimately one of the reasons why back shoulder fades and back shoulder throws work so well in the NFL. And in addition to it just being a pretty damn good over-the-top ball with the trash at his feet, throwing to the field side, which makes it a harder throw, I like how at the start of the snap, he's really reading and looking at that safety who's in the middle of the field, who's reading, the safety himself is reading kind of that over route by the tight end who's carrying that up the field toward the middle of the field. The safety takes two or three steps down toward the tight end, and that allows Daniel Jones, at least in his mind, to know that I can look back to the left, and I don't even need to look back. I can just throw this football back to the left without looking at this one on one and he makes this throw and it's a risky decision. It's a balls to the wall decision. And I like it because these are the types of decisions that could lead to big plays, especially if you're going to throw a pretty damn good ball out there, which he does. 
Once that safety matches the number two, Daniel Jones has to know, and he might have saw this at his peripheral vision, Dan. He has to know he has that one-on-one. -on -one. And looking at Christian Fulton's leverage on this play, man, he's playing like a zone type of technique, ass to the sideline, but he's not squeezing Sterling Shepard, and, and he's not outside leverage here. So you have no feel by the leverage that Christian Fulton has on Sterling Shepard. You don't really have a feel for what Sterling Shepard is doing with his route. And Sterling Shepard and Daniel Jones both exploit that. So I'm wondering if Daniel Jones recognized the leverage pre-snap, saw the safety come down, and then saw the inside slight leverage, knowing that Sterling Shepard basically has a cornerback with a blind spot against him from the numbers all the way to the sideline running a vertical route. And Sterling Shepard exploits it too, man, because once Christian Fulton realizes, oh crap, like Daniel Jones is throwing it in my direction, Shepard does a good job angling back towards the numbers, which just further expands Fulton towards the middle of the field. And then the throw was well-placed outside the numbers, slightly outside the numbers. And then at the catch point, there's like, you know, four, three or three and a half, four yards of separation from Sterling right. Shepard to Christian Fulton. So I felt like that was a really good read by Daniel Jones, just to know that he's going to have that one-on-one -on -one matchup, not hundred percent certain on the, on the leverage from Fulton. Maybe he thought that Daniel Jones didn't have the type of arm talent to put it over the top like that. Maybe he thought that he was going to come off of Sterling Shepard's route and play that drag. That would be a little bit weird. Maybe it was a miscommunication, something we saw a little bit earlier with David Sills could be some of those kind of things, but end game giant score, a 65 yard touchdown to a guy who tore his Achilles less than a year ago. And again, with the trash at Jones's feet and the ability to step up into the pocket and with the caveat or not caveat, which is the context that he is thrown to the field side, he releases his ball from around the, the Giants own 26 yard line and it drops right on in over the top to around the, uh, the Tennessee Titans 27 yard line. So that ball travels nearly 50 yards in the air. And like you said, pretty good job to keep that outside the numbers, not throw that back inside where Fulton can intercept the ball or make a play on the ball. All in all, this was a really good ball by Daniel Jones. If he can throw these kind of balls consistently, I, it's it's definitely a good thing for the Giants. It was very impressive and it was awesome. And I'm so happy for Sterling Shepard because we were just yes. talking about how much we love this guy. And if he anybody could catch it. a touchdown, oh, he deserves it, man. Definitely. He so deserves it, man. All right, let's get to, so now we got a tie ball game because the Giants couldn't figure out how to snap the football and create an extra point and kick an extra point. That was just was super disappointing. But was that on this touchdown or the first one? I actually can't remember. And that missed extra point was actually, that botch extra point was actually on the first one. Uh, one final thing about that touchdown that I wanted to bring up, I did like that it came in an up-tempo period by Mike Kafka and the Giants offense. They kind of did a little bit of a no huddle there, increased the tempo, and and sometimes we've seen in the past, like against the Giants, when McVay's used that and they got that big Cooper Cup play uh, in that in that game that two years ago where the Giants lost the Rams, not the one from last year. But just sometimes keeping the defense off guard with a little bit of tempo, a little bit of no huddle, and I think it worked to their advantage there. But let's now finally move on to this next ninth drive for the Giants. Um, here's the – I have a play that stood out. I want to first ask you what stood out to you because I want to I want to talk a little bit about the third and five in the third quarter with 136 to go. But before we do that, uh, let, let's get to anything that you wanted to break down before that play. No, I think we can get right into that third okay. and five. Okay, so for me, from my standpoint, Nick, I do want to see Daniel Jones a little bit quicker with the recognition here because this is a play that – and this goes for a lot of the plays at the quarterback position at the NFL level. You really do have to recognize things fast – Ground your feet and get into a position where you could throw the football fast and then have a quick release. That's a big factor in good and bad quarterback play across time and across the NFL now. I would like him here on this third and five to recognize the opportunity that has it. he has in space to find the best player on the field that day, and that's Saquon Barkley. But it has to be a quick recognition and a quick release to get him that ball in the flat because anything else other than that and 
it will be and it'll be too long. The play won't develop. And then once you get him that ball, he can do the rest. There's enough space on this play when you slow it down for Saquon Barkley to create five yards, in my opinion, if the ball's out to him right away when the ball's snapped. So I thought that Jones could have done a little bit better job to recognize this um, and to just get the ball out quicker in general. What were your thoughts on this play? Yeah, he had Saquon Barkley on this play. This is a mesh concept. Everything is reduced. Everything is tight inside the numbers. You have Sterling Shepard running the mosh, the over with, I think, Kenny Galladay running the mush under, and then the tight end, I believe it's Tanner Hudson just running that OTB over the ball route. You have two flare routes going out into the flat, and right at the snap, Daniel Jones looks at Saquon Barkley, like you said. Saquon Barkley has space. If Daniel Jones hits him in stride, it's going to be easy right there. And I wish Daniel Jones had a little bit more time because once he decided not to throw the football, he had some pressure coming off from the left side. Andrew Thomas kind of gets taken down by Bud Dupree. Andrew Thomas's feet get kind of tangled up with the initial three technique. Daniel Jones has Sterling Shepard, and this could have been a huge play for Sterling Shepard, but he ends up getting sacked as he tries to step to his right to extend the play. And I'm not going to really fault Evan Neal. It was Evan Neal's guy, but Daniel Jones put himself in a position to, to allow the edge defender to work back through Evan Neal in a very easy manner. There's really not much Evan Neal could do in that situation. Yeah, this one's certainly not on Evan Neal, just like the earlier one was not on Andrew Thomas. I think this one was risky by Jones because as he escapes into this, there is, to me, a scenario. It's obvious. There's a scenario here where this is actually not only just a sack, but a forced fumble. He held on to the ball in this one, but he took a really big hit and he put himself in a position where he could have had that ball stripped out. I don't want to see him escaping forward like he ha- like he did in so many of these examples in this game. I really want to see him processing this faster and getting the ball out fast. In this example, it had to go to Barkley. In other examples, there's other players. In other examples, there may not be a player, but still ground your feet and throw the ball out of bounds or throw the ball in a on the back shoulder to a, to, to a place where that you can maybe target a receiver and, and avoid an interception instead of just running through these and trying to create with your legs, because there really weren't an opportunity on any of the three plays we broke down already, Nick, for him to really create a first down with his legs and all three of them, he ended, they ended up being sacks and there just wasn't enough space in my opinion for Jones to break through them. You really needed like Murray or the Lamar Jackson type athlete to break through these gaps that were available in these spots. And, you know, one, none of them led to fumbles. Thankfully, they all led to sacks, but there is opportunities for them to lead to turnovers when you're when you're not throwing the football here, when you're not releasing it fast. And that's just one thing I think that has really stood out to me with Jones throughout his career. It's just that the processing is, is never been super fast. He's never been really quick with that release. And a lot of times, except for when Jason Garrett was kind of running those the concepts where it's just get the ball out and on those kind of horizontal spacing routes and just hit your back foot. <laughs> and like, then that's not kind of the quick release you're hoping for, right? Like that's just like by design and it's you, a bad do you, design. Do you know the meme of the Chihuahua? Do you know the meme of the Chihuahua with the backdrop of Vietnam looking on like he's yeah. just in shock? Yeah. When you brought up Jason Garrett's name, that was full on me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I totally get it, man. I, I was in that state of mind earlier when I saw when I was looking through true media and I saw that 38 of the 58 plays the Giants use pre-snap motion on and again eight of the 10 their 10 best plays by EPA pre-snap motion and it's just like I just think back to crap um not Crowder I just think back to Garrett last preseason where he's like no we use motion what are you talking about trust me we use motion we uh we just we use some tempo sometimes and we can't use motion it's like dude what are you what are you talking about we all watch this we all see how little pre-snap motion you use and so it's just crazy to me to think about. But anyway, this one ends up being another sack, another lost possession here. So the Giants move forward here. They get to their next offensive possession right into the fourth uh, fourth quarter here, the beginning of the fourth quarter. And we get our first look at Kadarius Tony in the 2022 season. First touch of the game, fourth quarter. He shows off to me and to all Giants fans 
why everyone is so excited about him. He's just so electric with the ball in his hands, and he has a unique trait that I think is potentially elite level across the NFL, and that's his stop and start ability. One thing I love about Tony, and he combines it, you know, not only does he have the stop and start ability trait, he uses it well, Nick. I think he's really crafty, creative, and nuanced, to be completely honest, with that God-given natural ability. Because I don't really often see him trying to outrun the edge. That's the stupid thing, getting horizontal. He gets vertical. He stops and starts. He gets vertical. He keeps his pad level low. And he, it almost, to me, feels like, and this, I felt like this with Tony Nick throughout all his tape I watched him at Florida, throughout all of his rookie season. I think he has a knack for understanding how to maximize the most yards on every given every given touch that he's ever had. I feel like he's maximized the yards from getting vertical and from moving his body upfield. And he does a great job of it on this play and creates a 15-yard gain. Dude, you nailed that. He literally gets the most out of every carry, every catch that he receives. And you can see it on this, man. He's just excellent with his vision and his ability to read his blocks. And he has that God-given athletic ability that you brought up to maximize it. I feel like that is one of the traits about Kadarius Tony that we don't talk about enough is his vision because he's a wide receiver. But you still need vision when you have the football in space and there are blocks in front of you. And I feel like Kadarius Tony does just an excellent job, like you said, maximizing it. But also, I think we should also bring up, Dan, how Kafka drew this play up. What right. did he do? He pulled the play side guard, which would have been the play side guard for the Saquon Barkley handoff and the center. Same look that he showed since the top of the third quarter. It's the same exact look with jet motion, something he used the entire game. Only this time, Daniel Jones squeaks it into the midsection of Kadarius Tony, and then goes like he's handing the football off to Saquon Barkley. If you watch the all 22 sideline version, there are about eight pairs of eyes on Saquon Barkley. And one of the only players who read this play very well, who wasn't the cornerback to the side where Kadarius Tony received the handoff was Amani Hooker, who put himself in the position to basically eliminate two of the Giants blockers, which sucked. But Kadarius Tony still got a lot out of this play. But still, I love the play call here by Kafka and the fact that he showed this look several times and now ran the jet sweep that he motioned so many different times off of it, picked up 19 yards, man. That is excellent offensive coordination type of stuff right there. And I'm so glad you brought that up, Nick, because it's so easy for me, even at time and for any of us, I would assume to just be drawn to the eye candy of this play. And the eye candy is, Oh my God, look at Darius Tony and what he's able to do after he touches the ball. But the 30,000 foot view is it's another big win for the giants from a coordination standpoint and from a play calling standpoint, because of what you just said, it's another example of Kafka showing something that he's shown all game and he's continued to beat down the Titans with, and then just using that as almost like a play action. It's not a play action, but it is in some ways a play fake because it has the defense moving in a certain direction based on their expectation. And they should have that expectation that the ball is going to go that way to Saquon Barkley. And then you have Tony going the other way, but man, does that make me realize when I take a step back and I think of from that standpoint, Nick, man, does it make me realize like this Giants offense hasn't even come anywhere close to reaching its peak because when it reaches its peak, it's going to have Saquon Barkley moving in one direction and Kadarius Tony moving the other direction on a high multitude and volume of plays. And it's going to be really difficult for the defense to figure out where they want to move post snap because either way, they kind of lose. If they go with Barkley, they lose. If Barkley doesn't have the ball, if they go with Tony, they lose. If Tony doesn't have the ball and when they play fake to either of them, Jones will still have the option to check down or to throw back to either of those two players off the play action. And that's what has me so excited about this offense moving forward. If Kadarius Tony obviously works himself into a position where he can get 80, 85, 90% of the snaps, which to me is the ultimate goal for him on this offense. That's what we hope. 
And Dan, Jason Garrett tried plays like this, I right? Know. He tried plays like this and what happened every time? And we would be like, why the heck was that guy unblocked? Yeah. That's the design of the play. <laughs> but guess what? He wasn't fooling opposing defenses, Dan. He wasn't fooling opposing defenses because he would just run it and never show that look several times throughout the game and get right. that seed into the mind of the defense like Mike Kafka did. So Mike Kafka had success because guess what? There was an unblocked defender that Kadarius Tony had to avoid on this play. But guess what that unblocked defender was doing? A lot of weight on that inside foot with his eyes on Saquon Barkley. And by the time he realized Kadarius Tony had the football, it was way too late. Exactly. So let's get to another. This drive has a lot of stuff I want to talk about, Nick. So I want to get to another thing that stood out to me. The second and 11 call, the 13.05 in the fourth quarter here. I love this call by Mike Kafka because this goes back to, I mentioned a little earlier, by the way. It's an underrated call because it didn't really go for any, a much yardage. It, it, was, it wasn't really executed the way we wanted to. Fine, whatever. But it did catch the defense off guard. When you watch this on field, on film, you see the defense was not ready for this play call because the Giants didn't use it all game. They had saved it, and they called it at what I thought was the perfect time based on what the defense showed post-snap. Really aggressive look post-snap. And this was the throwback screen, or the screen to Saquon Barkley here. Evan Neal kind of caught in no man's land, I felt. I want to hear your opinion on what happened with Evan Neal here. Did he not know the play call? What happened? What was going on? But ultimately, it doesn't end up going for what it probably should. But this could have been a really big play. And I really love the timing of this play call by Kafka. Yeah, I think Evan Neal was just a little hesitant to go downfield because he doesn't want to get an illegal man blocking mm -hmm. downfield penalty. So by the time Saquon Barkley catches the ball, he's still patient. He's moving laterally. He's moving laterally. And then by that time, Saquon Barkley explodes past him and Neil's probably like, oh crap. But he was just being diligent to not get a penalty there. And his timing was a little off. And also pre-snap on this play, if you look, Tennessee Titans look like they're bringing pressure. You have 32 pressed up on the line of scrimmage to the field side. And if they brought 32, 32 ended up dropping into his own. But if they brought 32, that football would have replaced 32 where Saquon Barkley was. And Saquon Barkley would have had one less defender to worry about. So if the Titans were aggressive and Bowen sent the blitz here on this second and 11, if they wanted to send the house, this could have been a huge play for Barkley. But you're right. It goes for six yards. But trust me, this is going to be dialed up again in due time. Oh, yeah. Now let's get to a third and five here where the Giants ultimately convert to Richie James here. I just wanted to shout this out, Nick, because I want to see if you caught this too. I put it on Twitter. I really love the release off the line of scrimmage from new Giants tight end tight Tanner Hudson. All, although like this doesn't ultimately go to him, he creates so much separation off the line of scrimmage that if Jones had seen this right away and recognized it, he could have thrown that ball right through the gap, hit Hudson, and it was an easy first down as well. The good news is he found James anyway for the first down. But I just wanted to shout out Hudson here for his release. This is 12-23 in the fourth quarter. I also wanted to shout out on this very same play. Again, it's a play that went to James, but the two players who stood out to me were Hudson and Saquon Barkley. Because Saquon Barkley does a really good job processing where he's supposed to be for this blitz pickup. Is it the most perfect blitz pickup ever? No, it's kind of ugly looking in some ways, but he does enough. More importantly, he reads where he's supposed to go. And then secondly, he does enough to get in front of the defender enough so Jones can get the ball off to Richie James and convert this first down. 
dude, Tanner Hudson does the stanky leg on this play, man. He freaking just fires his feet at the line of scrimmage and gets that linebacker to back off of him, wins so cleanly. Honestly, Tanner Hudson and David Sills were two players that did not record a catch but played so much yes. better than their stat line would it indicate. They were open on several different plays, and eventually that's going to break right for them. I think it was this was a good contested catch, though, by Richie James. And you're right, Saquon Barkley, this wasn't a difficult read for Saquon Barkley. That was the player he was going to block if all of the players who showed like they were blitzing were going to blitz because that is the most direct line to the quarterback. You knew Bredesen was going to take the slanting two technique and Andrew Thomas was going to open up for the edge. Saquon Barkley recognized it and did just enough, like you said. But I love to see Tanner Hudson with some nimble feet there, man. He's a name I didn't think we were going to be talking about so much on this podcast, but you're right, man. He was open on a lot of these plays. He deserves a shout out because I I feel like the Giants might have found a little bit of an upside receiving tight end. I don't know if he'll ever be a blocking tight end. There's very few. It's so hard to find him in the NFL, which, by the way, Nick, if we get to a draft, I'll tell you this right now. I'll give you the heads up on this right now. If we get to a draft process and the Giants are in position to draft some kind of two way tight end prospect. I don't know, and I haven't looked at this class, but the kid from Notre Dame I like a lot. I don't know when he's ever coming out. But if they can ever draft one of these two-way tight ends, I'm viewing it the same way I view those deep half safeties. Just unicorn picks that I'm willing to go all out on and try to get because I would just think that life would be so much better if they could ever get one of these guys. But as far as Hudson goes, I think he can be a receiving weapon for the Giants, potentially. He flashed really good traits in this game on that play specifically to get to create that release off the line of scrimmage. And like you said, on other plays that will go unnoticed. And you mentioned David Sills. In addition to the deep ball we mentioned earlier, which was kind of just a go route, a little bit of broken coverage. The play that really stood out to me about David Sills was a play you texted me about earlier this morning when the film first came out. End of the first half. We haven't even got we we got past this already. We blew past it. We didn't go over it. Jones is rolling to his right. Jones doesn't make these kind of throws and very few quarterbacks do. But David Sills puts on a double move here where the Giants had a real opportunity. If I, and personally, I just don't think that while rolling to his right, Jones could ever put this ball on where it has to be for this to be a touchdown. Herbert can do it. You know, there's very few quarterbacks. Mahomes can do it. There's few quarterbacks who can. Burrow actually is really good at the roll to the right deep ball. Kyler. Kyler's good at the roll to the right deep ball for sure. But throwing off platform obviously is not really Jones' thing. But David Sills, focus in on him. And we you can, if you have the timestamp on this, you might have put this on Twitter, but and you could direct people there. But David Sills puts on a Jared Abraderis level double move. I don't know if you remember Jared <laughs> Abraderis. I do. But this dude made a career and almost and got dragged went to the Packers for a little while. I think he only I think he even got like a fifth round pick despite being an unathletic white dude who ran like a four eight. He made a career out of double moves at the University of Wisconsin where he would just leave these corners dusted. I remember there was like a top corner prospect who might have ultimately been also drafted by the Packers for, I think it was Ohio State. It was before Okuda. It was whoever their top prospect was before Okuda. And Jared Aberdares just killed him with these double moves and just lit him up with double moves. And that Sills double move. At the end of the half, you may have the timestamp, and, and if you do, let us yeah, it's know. Eight now. seconds left in the okay. in the second quarter. Eight seconds left in the second quarter. If you guys have the film, go check this out. And if not, I think Nick put it on Twitter. Or no, I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't put this. I think you might have. I might have put this on Twitter. So check my feed. But this double move, I think I did because I said Sills Army engage because this double move Sills put on, man, I, and just watching Sills and focusing in on him. I'm starting to change my stance a little bit on Sills. Like maybe he can beat NFL level defenders. It may not be with athleticism and pure God gift speed, God gifted speed. But that double movie put on was super special, super impressive. And I think overall, Sills had a few routes that he ran in this game where I guess the ball, you know, obviously the ball didn't go his way, but he got open and he displayed traits that can win at the NFL level, I think. 
And it's also just very, it was a very adaptive move by David Sills on that play. Cause you're getting squeezed to the sideline, just cut it up field. And in that, in doing so the cornerback who is in your side of the, on your side of the field is looking at the underneath route. So it's on that safety now to realize that you're not in the flat anymore and you're going vertical and the safety is a little bit late to do so. If Jones saw this, I don't know if it would have went for a touchdown. Cause I don't know if David Sills is going to be able to run 40 yards and outrun whoever the safety is. It might've been Bayard, might've been hooker either way. That would have been difficult and the time was going to expire. But either way, I, I love the fact that he put himself in that position to have success. So, you know, I just wanted to shout out David Sills and to circle back to that other play we were going over just because we were talking about Tanner Hudson releasing off the line of scrimmage. He was basically, he wasn't a tight end. He was in a two point stance. So he was in a wide receiver stance. Everything was reduced and it was just double slants to James and Tanner Hudson. So Tanner Hudson had to win inside and he did so very easily. I just want to clear that up because it's a little bit difficult to exactly know what we're talking about because we're, you know, there's no video here. This is all audio. Yep, exactly. And I'm happy you did that. I feel like you know, you guys guide us through this. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what needs to be clear. If we can slow things down, if we can break things down as you listen and and things of that nature. So I want to get to the third down and third and 10 play here, uh, because I actually thought this was a positive in the Daniel Jones stat line. So, Daniel so Jones, this is back to the fourth quarter, 1044 left. Yep. There you go with the, the, the timestamp. Yep. Um, and so I thought Daniel Jones after a game of, you know, somewhat in a lot of ways, in my mind, at least I know we kind of saw this a little bit different. I get it struggling to manipulate the pocket. I thought this was the best example of Daniel Jones manipulating pocket on this third and 10, like you said, with 1044 left in the game. Jones manipulates the pocket, is calm, collected in it, and does an even better job, in my mind, getting back to the right read, standing and delivering the football with pressure coming down. Now, is it a perfect ball? No, it's not. Unfortunately, he just doesn't have the arm talent to make this a perfect ball. Like, let's be honest, Nick, if Justin Herbert throws this football, it's never done. It's never it's the ball placement is never landing where it landed for Richie James to try to make a play on this ball. That ball's getting to the receiver. It's hitting him in the chest with velocity. This is a technique issue, though, too, Dan. Okay, so go to the go to the end zone angle. Look at his look at his back foot and watch how he throws this football. Okay, let's take a look right here. I'm scrolling yeah. into this play. So for those who obviously aren't watching, Daniel Jones, he steps with his plant foot, but the way he like drags his back foot, he doesn't really swing with it. He's like basically trying to force this this ball, like like Kentucky windage style, into Richie James, who is running on a deep horizontal cross in space. Like he's pretty open on this play. And this is the one where Richie James probably should have caught it. It wasn't a good throw, but Richie James just couldn't hang on to it as he dove to the ground. But, but if you look at Daniel Jones's back foot here, because he's like jumping around, he's going through his progressions and he's doing a good job kind of going through his progressions. And he realizes that the safety is going to match the, the backside deep horizontal cross, which means Richie James is isolated against Caleb Farley coming from the other side of the field. So he diagnoses that, gets through his progressions. Good job from a mental standpoint on Daniel Jones. But the way he throws this football is just awkward and it feels forced. And I'm not a quarterback expert in terms of mechanics. But if you look at the way his back foot just kind of like goes up and he's not really driving into it. And then you see the trajectory of the ball on a throw. That's not all that difficult from the near hash. I just think this was a footwork issue. And maybe it was because Jeffrey Simmons was coming into his face. It wasn't that dire at the time, but I'm thinking that's the reason why this ball died is, is that back foot. Yeah, I'm looking at it now from a totally different perspective because I'm looking at it from the end zone view. I think I originally either overlooked it or just kind of went off of the 
regular, you know, the, the field angle or the, the all 22 vision angle, the coach's angle, it's <laughs> whatever that's called. I'm for some reason, I'm, it's escaping me right now. And as you look at it kind of from that end zone angle, you see, and again, it's just another example, unfortunately of Jones, Jones's feet are very, they move a lot when he's in the pocket. It's not, it's just this is not what you want. You want a quarterback who's again going to not move that much with his feet in the pocket and really have a bit the ability to ground himself into these throws. I think that plays a big role in why the ball dies down. Ultimately, though, I still think it's a plus play for Jones. I stand by it just because I think he gets the right read here, does a better job not panicking to escape the pocket, and ultimately puts the ball in a position where it can be caught. Like, yes, the velo is not great. The ball kind of dies and he has to come back to it, but. Richie James can come up with this catch. Yeah, Richie James should have probably came up with that catch. NFL wide receivers come up with that catch. And I think Richie James is an NFL wide receiver, but I think hands are an issue that we're going to see happen if he continues Mm. to play this many snaps. I mean, how many snaps did Richie James play in this game? Richie James, I think Richie James played 42 snaps. Tanner Hudson, who we were bringing up before, played 19 snaps. So of the wide receivers, Kenny Galladay played the most at 46. No one would have guessed that. Sterling Shepard at 43. And then Richie James is right there at 42. So it says something. And would he have played that much if Wondell Robinson did not get injured? Right. Maybe not. Probably would have been Wondell Robinson. But it's obvious that Richie James is higher on the pecking order than one Kadarius Tony. Without a doubt. And then... We get to the next possession after the Giants recover a fumble in the red zone. They're set up in the red zone. I don't have anything to touch on until the interception. Do you have anything you want to go over before the interception? No, nah, just some zone read plays. We, we can get to the interception. We're running okay. long. <laughs> and I, running I don't long. mind. I don't mind. I, but... no, I love talking ball with you. Hopefully the fans will enjoy the longer version of this podcast. Well, it probably won't always be this way, but it's the first one of the year. So let's, let's roll it. Let's enjoy it. Um, so on the interception, we'll get there now. So, it's it's cl- quite clearly a bad read by Daniel Jones. In addition to staring down Saquon Barkley, it's the wrong read. Again, there's not really much open here. He could try to drive the ball on the in-breaker here from the right hash. I was looking at that. Like, can he throw that in-breaker uh, on the inside? I think it was to Shepard. Maybe he'd have to throw it in a good spot. But ultimately, despite there not really being anything, you have to throw this ball out of bounds. And you have to throw this ball with a lot more velocity. I think Daniel Jones runs into a problem that I see a lot when evaluating Daniel Jones, Nick, I'm curious to get your take. In my opinion, throughout his career, at times he's really focused too much on trying to perfectly place the football. And it does seem to me like every time he tries to do this, it impacts his velocity and his ball placement. And this is a perfect example of, if you look at the end zone angle of this interception, that ball does not at all jump out of his hands, right? I mean, the, that ball dies down as it gets go, as it breaks back to the end. It's thrown to the inside, first of all, which is terrible because the corner is just sitting there. Like you said, he was sitting there the whole time. But that ball dies down as it's thrown to the inside. It just doesn't jump out with the right velocity. He kind of slides and hitches into the throw, slides left and hitches into the throw, kind of almost looks like he's in some ways throwing it off his back foot. He's not, but at the same time, he's kind of, moving backwards within his slide and within his hitch. And then the ball just doesn't at all jump out of his hands. And so there's a really an alarming lack of velocity on this throw for me. There's really alarm, a bad ball placement and a bad read, all things that you just can't have. Watching this play, this is the play that we saw several times in preseason. Do you remember the choice route that Saquon Barkley caught on the sideline where he went out against the linebacker? And we were all talking about it against Patriots week one. This is the same play. Only the choice route he took vertical. I think it's right. the same play because on that same play, it was a three by one set. Saquon Barkley offset to the the boundary side, or like I, I don't. I should say 
it's not the boundary side, but he's offset to the side where the tight end is, which is technically the strength, but it's not the three receiver side. So the tight end runs in the same in that game. He runs basically into the middle of the field and just occupies the safety on the three receiver side. They run a double China concept. And double China concept is two in routes from the number two, number one receiver. So that is the, the outside. And then the second outside receiver, the number three receiver runs a seven route. He runs a corner route over the top of them. So this is the same play that was run in preseason. So I'm wondering, since what we saw in preseason was choice routes, which was confirmed after the game by Brian Dable and just a lot of people talking about that specific play, if Daniel Jones maybe expected Saquon Barkley to do something different, and then he just panicked. That could be what happened here. And I'm just coming up with this after watching it right now, but that's kind of what I think happened. Because if you watch Saquon Barkley run right. this route at about the five yard line, he fires his feet and decides to turn this into a vertical, but he could have went inside. He could have went outside. And I think Daniel Jones might've expected something else possibly realized it wasn't that. And then he just put the ball into a very, very dumb position to be intercepted. That could be, it's a theory. It's not certain, but I think that that's plausible. I like that theory, Nick, because I'm watching this back now and I'm looking at it. And again, I still just wish Barkley just breaks back on the inside of this choice route. It's there's a lot of trash there in the middle. There's three Titans defenders. It's probably not going to be a touchdown. So I don't mind the aggressive decision by Barkley to maybe try to go for that vertical. But I'll be honest with you, Nick. It's not a great route by Saquon Barkley here. Like he doesn't really freeze a defender at all. The defender is not out of position after he goes vertical. I wish he kind of sold the inside, like the breaking back on the inside on the angle route a little better to kind of try to freeze that defender. So maybe it is just what happened. Like Jones was expecting, not expecting this from Barkley. And by the time he adjusted to what Barkley did, he's not panicking, but he's realizing nothing else is going to be open on the backside at this point. It's way too late in the progression of the play. All I really have is Barkley. Maybe I can try to fit this ball in there. But that's the problem there because yes. he doesn't have the arm talent to fit the ball in there. I don't know that any quarterback has the arm talent to fit this ball in there, right? Like, this is a tough throw to make for Herbert. This is a tough throw to make for Mahomes. Like, I don't really see any way this throw can really be completed. Like, as I look at it, do you think that any quarterback could really make this happen? Because I may be wrong on that. I'm curious to get your take on if you think any quarterback can at can make this throw happen given where the defender is situated situated at the time of the throw. I think you got to throw it near the pylon. I think you got to throw yeah. it maybe one yard into the end zone near the pylon. And so Saquon basically has to stop because you're right, man. Saquon, this is not a good route by Saquon. It, it reminds me of something like when you're playing Madden and you know Madden has all of its glitches and you throw right. a route that the game just decides, well, there's a good cornerback in the area. This is going to be an interception. Right. And your guy just kind of like slags off and then like Jalen <laughs> Ramsey picks the ball off. That's what it kind of reminds me of here. And I'm not just sitting here chastising Saquon Barkley. The guy had one hell of a game. But I don't know if if he if this was a choice route, if he was even fully confident on the move to employ against this defender who played really well. He was over the top. He had a slight outside leverage a little bit with his hips pointed inward, kind of forcing Saquon Barkley towards the sideline. 37 played this really well. I believe that's Amani Hooker. And and Jones, you no know, excuse. You can't throw that football, even if Barkley maybe put you in a less than ideal situation. And I'm not even saying that's the case, but if that is the case, you still have to be smart and not throw the football and just live to fight another day in a third and seven situation when you're down by six. Yeah completely agree with you on that and I think that's probably a lot as you said on the recap podcast Nick I think that's probably a lot of why of, of what Brian Dable was saying to Daniel Jones when you saw him on the sideline kind of get in his face and and coach him out and get and get you know pretty up 
<laughs> pretty animated about it in, in some ways. So let's move forward past that. Obviously, the interception happens. Giants get another opportunity after that on their possession to really come down, score a touchdown, and ultimately they end up going for the game-winning two-point conversion. Uh, we Where do you want to start on this drive? Yeah, they have fourth quarter, 5-0-1 left. It was a second and six play, and this is a high-leverage situation. And I like how Kafka trusted Daniel Jones to run this RPO, and Daniel Jones had the stones to actually throw a pass into kind of a tight window here because the the Tennessee Titans kind of dropped their safety, who's initially kind of in the middle of the field down a little bit. And Daniel Jones goes in the mesh point on the RPO and reads that the linebacker is penetrating. He's just blitzing right off the right off the snap. So he just abandons the mesh point and then hits Richie James on this quick little slant. It was a pretty tight window here. It could have, it could have been kind of a much more precarious if the safety played it in a much more decisive manner. But I kind of like the fact that Daniel Jones, despite the fact he threw a really bad interception, not too long ago through the football when he, when he should have, when the play told him to throw the football and, and they, I think it only went for like seven yards, but still like, I, I appreciated that about Jones. Yeah, agreed completely with you on that. It was a nice little little gift. That, like the, That's what I meant when I said earlier that he executed the layup throws in a really good fashion. And a lot of those came on those. That was a second and six, but a lot of those came on third downs and high leverage situations. So there was a lot of good to Daniel Jones's game in this one, not just the big throw he made to Shepard. Um, and let's get into the next play that really breaks open the Giants drive and gives them an opportunity to ultimately score a touchdown later on the drive. And that was the Saquon Barkley run. The second big run of the game, or second biggest run of the game, I should say. What were your takeaways from this run? Why was it made possible? Who did a good job on it? It was two plays later. It was a second and seven, four minutes left in the fourth. Man, this is an excellent play by Mark Lewinsky. It's an excellent play just in general. And honestly, Saquon Barkley, we, we talked a lot about like just how good he was. Bro, he was running low behind his pads. He yes. was getting north and south. His decisiveness, decisiveness was excellent. Also, just his ability to cut behind his blocks and basically lean around his blocks, showing excellent flexibility, balance, and body control. It's something that I saw on at least three or four different runs where I was like, holy crap, that is impressive. But anyways, on this play, this is just double puller. Again, you're going to G lead. You're going to pull the play side guard. You're going to pull the center. You're going to pin pull with Andrew Thomas blocking down on that, on that three technique. And then I love how Mark Lewinsky has a two eye technique aligned. He's on the backside of this play, mind you, directly over top of him on this play, right? And what the Titans do is they slant everyone to their left. So Glowinski is expecting contact from this two eye technique, and then he's going to climb. But what happens is the lineman, the defensive lineman, slants inside. So Glowinski leans in, realizes that he's not going to have contact, and then just quickly accelerates up to the second level, goes to block somebody, but realizes Daniel Bellinger already has him squared up, and then adjusts to take out a safety. And right as he takes out this safety, he basically hip checks him. Saquon Barkley runs right off of his ass and accelerates for 33 yards. Mark Lewinsky covered so much ground on this play and showed so much mental processing to adjust himself to eliminate the play side alley defender safety. I thought that was one of the best, most underrated plays that I've seen from an offensive lineman, an interior offensive lineman in quite a while. I put it on Twitter. Go and check it out. Great play by Mark Lewinsky. And I'd love to hear that, Nick, because Mark Lewinsky, under the radar type signing, the Giants were able to make this signing despite being in cap hell this offseason, the only one they were really able to make. And it's just exactly what you want. Like, if you could ask for any signing, it would be a stable, bright guard, because that's not what the Giants had last year with Will Hernandez. And I saw plenty of examples in this game of Mark Lewinsky doing things from a movement standpoint and getting in front of plays and just, just executing assignments from a movement standpoint. 
that quite frankly, Will Hernandez at right guard was not able to execute. Will Hernandez was a boxy mover. He could not move well in space. And while Mike, Mark Lewinsky is not Quinton Nelson, he's not some kind of all pro they found out of nowhere, he's going to be exactly what this offensive line lost when they lost Kevin Zeitler. It's that stability at right guard. And it's going to be, there's going to be examples that Nick, like the one Nick just broke down, where he's going to make a play that's unheralded. It doesn't show up in the box score, but it played a key role in the Giants winning a football game or having a chance to win a football game. And that's exactly what Glowinski did on multiple plays in this game. So kudos to him. I love that you broke that down. And let's get to the next play, which was Gadarius Tony trick play. Me and you both love this from a play calling standpoint because we think that it shows an excellent feel for the game. You just hit the big run play. A defense is expecting you after that long, you know, you hit the big run play. It's just like any big play downfield. It takes a while for the lineman to get back down the field. It takes a while to get situated. The play clock's usually draining down. And most teams are just like, whatever. They just run the ball, right? Like just like play clock's running down. We don't really have time to prepare. Let's run the ball. Instead, Kafka go Kafka goes for the throat here with this trick play to Tony. Ultimately, it doesn't work, right? Like the, the coverage doesn't really bite. They don't bite down on Tony. They don't scream downhill to stop Tony. The receivers are running the verts and they're just not open. Tony makes an insanely good sorry, individual play on this one, Nick, to cut back, go across the green, and then get vertical and not try to go all the way across the green and turn a six-yard loss into a four-yard gain. Just 10 yards of offense the Giants would never have without Darius Tony there. Might have derailed the entire drive if it was anyone but Tony. If we take a six-yard loss, we're backed up behind the sticks in second and 16. Who knows if this ultimately leads to a touchdown this drive? It could be game over. So kudos to Tony. I want to make that clear. But again, I just love the balls on Kafka to try to go for the throat here and call a trick play that he thinks could lead to a touchdown right away. Instead of trying to do the Jason Garrett, grind your way to the end zone, get yourself in a position where you're in that condensed red zone area, where quite frankly, as a coach, you already saw your quarterback throw an interception in the condensed area. Instead of putting yourself through that, he tries to go for the quick hitting touchdown. So anything else you wanted to touch on from that play? Just keep in mind that when the Giants spring these big runs or they have big plays, they're going for the throat afterwards. That is something that we're going to see. It's not something that we saw too often. They might have taken like a play action shot where like one guy was running a route or right. something like that. But this is a trick play, a creative play. And I felt like, like you said, Tony did a great job on it. Okay, Nick. Now we get to a really key critical situation of this game. The pivotal moment. Fourth and one, New York Giants. And ultimately, when push comes to shove, gun to my head, Nick, this is my favorite call from Mike Kafka in week one by far. Why is that? Because on the third and two, Kafka calls a play that leads to a design quarterback run for Daniel Jones. So what is every single person in the world and every defense thinking on this fourth and one after the third and two design run for the quarterback doesn't convert? Everyone is thinking there's no way they could go back to the quarterback run. They're obviously going to give the ball to Saquon Barkley, their best player who put them in the position to, and to win this game. They're all whole offense, this entire game, right? He's obviously going to get the ball. They tried the quarterback run. They tried to catch a soft guard on third and two. It didn't work. It was cute. It was fun. Now they're going back to Barkley. And what does Kapka do? The exact opposite. He puts the ball back in Jones's hand on the bootleg. You watch the entire defense flow down towards Saquon Barkley on this fake. The entire defense goes with him. It's a good fake by Jones, too. By the way, kudos to Daniel Jones for this ball fake. It's one of his better play-action ball fakes. And yeah, he's actually a pretty good quarterback in my mind in that regard when it comes to kind of selling the play-action fakes. Not the best, but pretty damn good. And yeah, eventually a defender tries to scrape over and it cuts off the angle to some extent where Jones doesn't get some kind of touch touchdown run or big run 
but it's enough to get Jones in space for what is pretty much an easy first down. And that may have not been an easy first down if Kafka just did the obvious thing that you see over and over on fourth and one after a failed quarterback run on third and two. Hand the ball to Barkley, try to bunt it, you know, pound that thing up the middle. And that might have not worked. I, I didn't really break it down to see if it would have or would not. And I think the play's a little different if it actually went to him. We won't know. But to go back to the quarterback run, man, after showing it on third and two and not converting, I just think that's perfect play calling. That's perfect play calling feel by Kafka. It's doing exactly the opposite of what you guess the defense is going to expect you to do. Yeah, I absolutely love this. I, I really did. And if you watch, I think I put a picture on Twitter, just what the Titans defense was like right as Daniel Jones faked the, the handoff to Saquon Barkley. Everybody was penetrating gaps. There was like 10 guys at the line of scrimmage. Everyone's eyes was on Saquon Barkley. No one was watching Daniel Jones. I mean, the, the, the guy's name is Daniel Jones. No one's watching him in this type of situation. He just keeps the ball, just runs it around the edge, man, outruns that defender, and he has a lot of space to do so. And this is still to the boundary. He's on that hash, but everybody bought Saquon Barkley. So I do love this play call. And I, I think it was the right play call. I think if you handed this to Saquon Barkley, like you said, the blocking would have been different. But if you handed this to Saquon Barkley, it would have been tough, man, because they fully committed to right. the run on this play. And they pulled the backside guard, Josh Zudu, to sell it because it's something they did all game. So still, you still have those little those little seeds of, hey, look, we're running the football again. It's just another little pin-pull, single-puller concept. No, it's not. No, it's not. Exactly. And that's why it's such a perfect call. All right, let's close this final drive out and then get to some breakdowns of offensive linemen that were requested by some listeners. And then also let's get down to some superlatives we're going to hand out and grades overall for the offensive line play, something we did and had fun with last year. Where do you want to wrap this drive up? Go over any plays that you want to uh, close out on for sure. Well, I think we could just probably talk about the second and one touchdown. This was yep. another play where it was a misdirection type of play that was going to be a play action, but Daniel Jones opens to his right and then goes to hand off to his left. Everybody bites in that direction. And Daniel Jones just rolls out because no one's paying attention to Daniel Jones because Saquon Barkley put this team into the position here. David Sills motions in from the right side to the left side in a similar way that Sterling Shepard was doing all game to be a wide receiver insert to pick up that safety to add additional blockers in the box. He releases him and Chris Myrick both act like they're going to block and they both release. David Sills falls down. He would have been wide open though. And then when Chris Myrick is all alone by himself, I like the fact that they motioned David Sills into that reduced spot to show like, hey, look, we're just going to hand the football off like we did with Sterling Shepard doing the same thing. But instead, like we know, Mike Kafka likes to dial up a bunch of fakes, keeps the defense on his toes. This is an easy touchdown pass to Chris Myrick, who loves catching these one-yard touchdown passes. And the one final thing I would probably add before we move forward, Nick, is that as I rewatched it, the one other thing I learned from the film was it was truly an incredible individual effort from Saquon Barkley to convert that two-point conversion. Did we love the play call? Yeah, it's a great play to steal from a Chiefs playbook. But it got to be honest, it wasn't really executed all that well by the Giants other than one Saquon Barkley who put himself in a position where the defenders are kind of like had a pretty good angle on him. He beat both of those two defenders at a good angle on him, then still had to get himself vertical, lower his pad level and get through the end zone, like get through, break the goal line, all things that he did a perfect job of on that play. So that was kind of my final note, rewatching the film of that two point inversion. I really realized what an incredible individual play it was by Saquon Barkley. Absolutely. And Daniel Jones, he holds that defender. I can't remember exactly who it was. He holds that defender in place. And what he's doing is he's trying to expand that defender laterally 
right? Because the Giants motion, I think it was Richie James in that direction. You're trying to expand all those defenders laterally towards Richie James as Daniel Jones rolls out to his right, acting like he's going to throw to Richie James with the stalk blockers on the cornerbacks. But instead, it's just that little shovel pass, something you see all the time with Andy Reid the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm glad the Giants converted it, but you are right, man. If that wasn't Saquon Barkley and that was just a ho-hum running back, that might have got stuffed. Yeah, without a doubt. All right, Nick, let's move forward. A couple people have asked us for some offensive line evaluations. Let's start with Evan Neal. That was asked by multiple people. What were your thoughts from breaking down Evan Neal in this game? In his first game as a, the rookie's first game as a starting NFL player at the right tackle position with the Giants. I think you saw his power. There were at least two, maybe three plays where Evan Neal got his hands on one of these Tennessee Titans edges and just tossed him to the ground. I still think the the issues persist with Evan Neal. He doesn't always bring his feet into contact. He can fall off blocks, stuff that we saw back when he was at Alabama. But in terms of just that sheer power and that raw power, I felt like it was there. I felt like he was in position a lot. I felt like he looked pretty solid in pass protection. He looked comfortable. He looked patient. The way he attacks with his hands, the way he varies his attack, he was doing all of those things. And again, I'll probably cut up a couple Evan Neal things and put them on my Twitter, so pay attention for that. I didn't just strictly pay attention to Evan Neal. Throughout the week, I'll probably do a more in-depth look at just how he specifically performed, but I definitely kept a close eye on Evan Neal and Andrew Thomas. And from everything I saw, it was solid. There were still mistakes. There's going to be a little bumps. There's going to be a little bruises here or there, but I still thought he came away looking good for his first start in the NFL. And I think that's the fun of it too. As we have all this time throughout the week, we can go back and watch the film and focus in on individual players more. But I did obviously want to keep an eye on Neil myself because it's such a big piece and component and asset of what this roster is going to be moving forward. If this roster hits, if Joe Shane gets it right. With both of these guys, eventually when Thibodeau gets back on the field and Evan Neal right now. And so I thought the two things that stood out the most to me were what you just said. His patience was the key there. He really looked like a player who was not completely overwhelmed. And I've seen a lot of Giants offensive linemen come through the system over the years that were overwhelmed. Now, it wasn't perfect as you broke down and there as we probably really look into the nitty gritty of it and break down it play by play basis. Maybe we'll have some thought, you know, some thought, some thoughts on potential flaws. But there were flash moments, too. I mean, like the play you threw up on Twitter, dude, as I watched that back. And as, as you said, for anyone who goes now and tries to watch it, only focus on Evan Neal, please. Because if you focus on Thomas <laughs> or whatever else happens on the play, it was the forced fumble strip sack of Daniel Jones. You're not going to be pleased. But Evan Neal shows exactly what you just said, that raw power, that ability to just derail an opponent's pass rushing path and throw him to the ground and take him completely out of the play because that's what it does. It takes that defender out of the play. The Giants haven't had a lineman. I mean, they were supposed to have that with Eric Flowers, right? He was supposed to have that kind of ability. He never did, ultimately, because it requires good technique as well as just raw power. And so I thought in that play alone, he flashed just the ceiling for Evan Neal, but I thought overall the floor was displayed by just his overall patience and just the ability. He showed an ability that he belonged there. And so that really stood out to me. Dude, there's a couple Andrew Thomas clips that are just hilarious. I have to tweet them out, man. There, there, there was this this clip where he was lined up against his edge rusher. And I know we're talking about Evan Deal, but I'm just like going through some of the clips. And he's so patient just getting into his set. And his edge rusher tries to hit him with power. And Andrew Thomas just anchors down, gets both of his hands inside and tosses him to the ground in such like a feeble manner. It's just like so demeaning. Like if I was an edge defender, I'd be like, oh man, you know, I'm in the NFL. Screw you. Like it was just one of those <laughs> types of things. And as for Evan Neal, man, like I, I came away impressed, man. I, I'm really excited to see how he develops here. 
because I can tell this kid is incredibly conscientious just every time he speaks, bro. I love listening to him talk about his craft and how serious he takes the game and everybody's raving about him. You don't hear anything negative about this kid's work ethic. I think that the, the ceiling is still high for him. I think he'll always struggle with, with certain balance issues when he is moving laterally. It's stuff we saw in college. It's stuff we knew when the Giants drafted him. But despite that, I think it's hard to beat Evan Neal. Like he was beat around the edge sometimes in this game, Dan. And he's so freaking long and athletic that he just kind of rides you up and around the pocket. So as long as the quarterback slightly steps up into the pocket, he's going to be fine. That happened like twice in this game where speed didn't necessarily kill him, but you could tell he was like, oh crap, this guy's fast. Okay. I'm just going to, okay. I got my hands on. All right. I'm just going to ride him away from the play. And I love that about Evan Neal, man, because that is such a great trait to have. You combine length with athletic ability, good work ethic, and a smart kid. You're going to have a good offensive tackle. And I think Evan Neal has a chance to be a good starting offensive tackle in the league. You nailed that, Nick. And I remember back to the first time we did an eval for him during March when we were doing those player evals before the draft. And that was what I said. I feel like this is a guy with an insanely high floor as a pass protector because I've seen this play out with the dude from uh, the dude from Baltimore who's now on the Chiefs. And I'm forgetting his name for some reason right now. Orlando Brown Jr. Same exact type of situation. He was too long to beat around the edge. And it's not just him. Like There's plenty of examples of these tackles that have the footwork. That I guess have the foot athleticism and the footwork and just the overall athleticism too at an insane length and size that they're just really hard to beat around the edge because they're too big that even when you kind of can get a first step on them, they're too long and they recover. And that's what I think Neil's going to be his whole career, a really plus pass protector for the Giants that doesn't often get beat, that we don't hear his name a lot as far as getting beat on pass plays. Will he be a perfect run blocker? Will he be a plus and dominant run blocker? That I'm not sure of. And that's kind of, I think, what you're touching on with the ceiling as well. We'll find out. That's something he can certainly be. And he could even evolve into some another level maybe as a pass protector. But I just ultimately think he's going to be that guy that we don't have to worry about in pass protection, blowing up plays, ruining drives, ruining games even with just bad, poor pass blocking. And that's the good news. And that's the really thing that gets me excited about him. Otherwise, on the offensive line, I would bring up John Feliciano personally as my unsung hero. If I had an unsung hero on offense, Nick, it's either him or Richie James in this game for me. And I'd probably go with Feliciano. I just think he did a lot of really good dirty work. And I think ultimately he made a lot of really good plays in the run game. And so I thought he would get that billing for me. Who would you go with as your unsung hero on the offensive side of the ball for this game? I would go with Mark Lewinsky. I felt like he had a lot of key blocks that no one was really discussing. I broke one of them down about 20 minutes ago, but he was just always in position. Yeah, he got bullied a little bit in some pass protection on on some pass protection plays, but I don't feel like it was a persistent problem throughout his game. I think there are a lot of players on the offense who can who can really fit into this category. You brought up Richie James and Feliciano, but I, if I had to pick one, I think I'd go with Glowinski. If we're not talking about players like Andrew Thomas, who is going to, he, he literally could be a top five tackle in this league. He has that type of upside. He looked, he looked good. He didn't win every rep, but he looked good. He looked real good. And yeah, just unsung hero. How about MVP on the offensive side of the ball? I mean, this one's pretty obvious, right? Yeah, I don't think we really even need. I don't even think we got to lower ourselves to, we don't to that. It's Saquon Barkley. It's Saquon Barkley, baby. All right, I'm gonna cut it off there for superlatives at least, just because it's 2:35 a.m. on the East Coast right now, and I have to wake up for work really early. But I will say this, and this has been our longest All 22 podcast ever, and I've had a lot of fun doing it. So. I, hopefully it's not too long for you guys. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it. You can let us know. Maybe we can break it up into two moving forward and find different ways to rephrase and reform it. But I want to end on this then, Nick. I want you to do, because I liked when we did this last year, I want you to give a 1 through 10 numeric rate. And remember, 
I hate people who don't give decimals in their grades. So don't be one of those people. <laughs> Just don't do it. Don't lower yourself that level. Oh, trust me, me I, one, I remember. <laughs> you know, you remember. Give me a one to ten grade of how you thought the Giants' offensive line was from a pass blocking standpoint in this game. I'm going to say, let's go with a five point nine. Okay. I think it was really ugly really early. And I think the running game really bailed it out to keep the defense honest because once the Titans were able to pin their ears back, they couldn't stop it. I, I could probably even go lower, but the fact that the Giants ended up pulling this game out and there were some clean pockets will, will drop me out of 5.9. I'll go 5.1, 5.1. I think a lot of the reason why the pass rush slowed down and looked like and it looked like the Giants were doing a better job in the second half was what you broke down first and so eloquently, Nick, which was Mike Kafka just doing an excellent job to derail the pass rush schematically. But overall, when you look at the numbers, the Giants were the most pressured team in week one. So it's hard to, I almost feel like even 5.1 or 5.9 is, is just is maybe even a little too high when you consider the Giants were, according to at least this was Rich Rebar who put this stat out. Giants were the most pressured team uh, pass production-wise. I think Andrew Thomas is the, ultimately the reason that this grade gets brought up big for me. And Evan Neal, in some ways, is, is certainly above this level. But Giants certainly had their issues on the interior from a pass protection. I'll say this, man. The difference between this offensive line and what we saw last year it's <laughs> it's not it's insane. You can't even talk about it. Like it's crazy. Last year's offensive line was incompetent, fully incompetent. It's it, it's it's so it puts a smile on my face thinking about it. But all right, uh, let's let's move on. That's <laughs> a great point though, Nick, because we didn't even have a chance to get off the ground last year with our offensive line. Now that nope. wasn't the case in this game. Like we're giving it a decently low grade because they did allow a lot of pressure and they didn't really have any kind of answer for Jeffrey Simmons. But at the same time, this wasn't like the typical Giants game that we'd seen from past years where the offensive line was clueless. They weren't picking up stunts. They were doing dumb stuff out there. This wasn't that. And so let's get to the fun part here. Give us a grade on the Giants run blocking one through 10. They also had two rookies who were playing significant snaps too. Yes. Like that's, that's difficult to really get cohesiveness for that unit. So for the run blocking on this play, I think I'm going to go with a, let's go with a good seven. I think, I think seven's good. Did you really just say give a full, a whole number after we just went over that? I don't like people who grade things about decimals. Yeah, but there is a decimal there. It's just Fine, a zero. 7, Say 7.0 then. 7.0. I don't All know why why we're putting like oh, that. There. Yeah. All right, fine. Oh. Seven zero. Go for why it. Are we, why are we putting a letter there? Enjoy, nah, a, whole but, uh, <laughs> enjoy a whole number. Enjoy a whole 7.0, man. Yeah, so I, I felt like Saquon Barkley was the best version of Saquon Barkley that we've seen probably since he's been here, maybe a little bit in his rookie season. And he really got the most out of some of those runs. I, I felt like the, the run blocking held up. I saw, I think, some some PFF stats or something like that, that that said the Giants had a really, really bad run blocking grade. I didn't lowest run blocking grade, the Giants in week one. That, that I saw that too today. We actually talked about it on the CBS podcast because we were talking about how well Barkley did. And Adam's like, he did all this with the second worst run block grade. That's crazy to me. I'm wondering if it's because the Giants, I don't know, maybe it's because they ran so much power gap and there was a lot of penetration. I'm not really 100% certain how it's graded. I, maybe I, it's because they just have random people grading these games subjectively with some kind of grading scale that we've never been privy to. I'm just, I'm not certain. I didn't feel, I felt like it was so getting paid like six bucks an hour or less to grade these games. But, <laughs> but yeah, dude, I, um, I, I think the, I think the Giants, run blocking was so much better than what we saw last year. So much better than what we saw the year prior. Good 7.0. It's fair. I don't want to go too hyper hyperbolic with it. I don't want to. I was originally like, I want to fire off an 8.3 or something. 
I'm going to settle in here at 7-1, 7.1. I will never go down to 7-0. You know what? Actually, I take that back, Nick. I'm going to give it a 6.9 nice because it was nice, and it was a nice game. But ultimately, I think you are right. A lot of this was nice. Yeah, nice. I think a lot of this was Saquon Barkley. So I want to make that clear. While there were flash plays that bring this grade up to at least a 6.9 to me or maybe even higher, we talked about the Azuto Pancake. We talked about some of the things Skowinski did. We talked about some of the things Feliciano did. We didn't even talk about him too much, but Andrew Thomas had some really nice down blocks, and he had the block that you talked about on the red zone touchdown to Barkley where he really widened that gap and created that massive, like you said, Mack truck level, you know, Mack truck size hole for him. So we're flash plays, but ultimately I think this was a lot of Saquon Barkley doing Saquon Barkley things. And and to me, it's like not even necessarily Saquon Barkley things. He flashed some things that I just wasn't really even accustomed to him doing during his rookie season. Cause if I remember during right during his rookie season, even from his first long play against the Jaguars, his first game's rookie season, he bounced that thing outside. He was getting vertical and lowering his pads to a level that I just haven't seen from him at maybe any point in his career. I really feel in a lot of ways, Nick, when all the context is considered, I tweeted about this today, and I don't want this. this it may sound hyper, hyperbolic, but I don't want it hyperbolic, I should say. I don't think hyperbolic is the way to pronounce that word. But anyway. Well, hyperbole is how to pronounce it, but in a different form, it would be hyperbolic. There is it not hyperbolic? I don't <laughs> I don't so. Probably not. It sounds better that way. It should be that way. I stand by that. But let me just say that as the, as the person who created the corpse core thing, I stand by that. But look, I think this was the best game of Saquon Barkley's career. When you consider the fact the Titans allowed the second fewest rushing yards to any team last year, the fact that they really just keyed in with an insanely aggressive game plan to take Saquon Barkley away and everything he did from getting vertical from reading his blocks in a different way that I had never that I hadn't seen a lot of the patience he displayed, the nuance, the processing, the running behind his pads, the getting low, the powering through contact, the creating after contact, before contact, everything that he put together in this, to me, it was, I think, the best game I've ever seen from Saquon Barkley. And you also got to consider how Tennessee's defense plays. They're penetrating, right? Yep. And I think that's one reason why PFF's grade is probably kind of low, right? Is because they penetrate so much and they're so aggressive getting upfield and they're so aggressive pushing offensive liming into the backfield that Saquon Barkley was forced to jump cut several different times. So one thing I want to say, if you just want to look at just how unique Saquon Barkley was in this game, the play I put up with Sterling Shepard, the wide receiver insert play where he takes out that safety, amazing block by Sterling Shepard, love Sterling Shepard. But the way Saquon Barkley jump cuts around Andrew Thomas, who is about a yard and a half in the backfield, slow the video down and look at Barkley's angle. Look how low he is as he jump cuts around this defensive lineman and gets between Andrew Thomas and Sterling Shepard's block while reading Joshua Zudu's block at the second level. It's wild. Just the space, how limited, the limited amount of space Barkley has there to sliver through this little crack and how he just slimes his way in there. It's so damn impressive, man. I'm so glad that Saquon Barkley's back. Yeah, this is me, not on back, but this may be, again, the best version of him that we're going to get, which is truly awesome because, as I said at the top of this podcast, man, and I really do feel this way, if you can beat the Titans, there are a lot of teams on the schedule that I now feel like the Giants could beat, and I do not think it's impossible anymore that they could be competing for a wild card spot. Remember, there's an extra wild card spot. Seven teams make the playoffs. Like, we haven't had one of those fun situations in the week 16, 17, 18 range in forever, it feels like, since 2016. We didn't really have it then because they were kind of in, where they're like, 
we need this team to lose and then we win and then this team loses and the Giants are in. Like I, I just 2020, want bro. Yeah, I just want to. Oh, yeah. The, the BS ones from 2020 that obviously could pop up. And when I'm not talking about those bullshit ones, I'm talking about the real deal ones where it's like all we need to do is win one and only need one team to lose or we even control our own destiny potentially. So. I don't know. I feel like he could be this focal point. He could be the best version of himself that really leads this team. It feels great. But thank you all so much for tuning in to a long but really fun on our end version of the All-22 Film Breakdown. You'll get more of these every one. Once, once a week, you're going to get these breaking down the game on film. Let us know which players you want to week. This is just the offensive one. Yes, once a week offense, once a week defense. And we'll do the drop the defense one tomorrow, by the way. It's way too late. We were thinking about doing a double tonight, but now this one we're in late and it's like 2.50 a.m. right now. And I am uh, i don't think I can do it. But thank you so much for tuning in. Again, the only thing we're ever going to ask from you is one thing. It's to leave us a five-star rating review on iTunes or Spotify. If you want to, leave a question in there. We'll answer it on the podcast. That's the best way to reach us, I would say. Otherwise, have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you tomorrow with this exact version of this, the All-22 Film Podcast Breakdown, but of the defense. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.